When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. September 12th, and I know if you were listening to this station at any point yesterday, you were, you heard a healthy dose of commemoration, of reflection, of discussion about the horrible terrorist attacks that happened 21 years ago. And uh, if you turn on television, on most of the channels, certainly in the New York area, but even some of the national channels as well. You saw a lot of that as well. You saw the reading of the names. You saw a lot of the coverage of the various memorials. And, uh, you know, in my house on Sunday, if we're still home by 9 a.m., we will generally turn on CBS Sunday morning. It's our favorite show. It's our favorite show, and it's one of the shows that uh, my wife and I both really enjoy. So uh, turn on CBS at uh, 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. And uh, my wife comes down, and CBS Sunday morning isn't on. It's the reading of the names. And my wife says to me, I can't watch it. It's too sad. Turn it off. A little bit later, 45 minutes or so, maybe an hour later, my mother comes over for breakfast. She says, in words or substance, essentially the same thing. She said, you know, I can't watch any of this September 11th related coverage. I had to turn off the radio. I couldn't turn on the television. Because it's just so sad. And uh, she said, look, we're New Yorkers. Of course we're never going to forget. We remember this like it was yesterday. And I don't want to be depressed all day because of this. I had a bunch of elected officials and appointed officials that I was in touch with on Sunday. Some came over. Some I was in touch with by phone. To a person, Democrat, Republican, they all said the same thing to me. Which is, I hate this day as an elected official. It's so depressing. I'm dreading having to go to this memorial, and uh, I am uh, just sick the whole day. I'm just sick and depressed. It doesn't mean that I care any less about the nearly 3,000 people that died on September 11th, but they all said to me, I hate doing this. This is my least favorite day of the year. So they basically said the same thing that my wife said and my mother said. Look, we all lost friends. Some of us lost family members, right? We don't need to go through this collective funeral every single year, just as you don't necessarily celebrate the anniversary of, you know, a, a family member that dies every single year. But sometimes some people do. So my plan initially 
as recently as yesterday afternoon was to not really cover much of the September 11th discussion. Not really do, because it really everybody did a great job on Sunday. I heard Curtis Lewa, I heard Governor Pataki, I heard Rudy Giuliani, I heard John Katsimatidis. Everyone did a great job, and I don't know what else I could add to that conversation. And then I'll tell you, there's two things that caused me to change my mind, and we are going to go into some different subjects as well, but there's two sub, two things that caused me to change my mind. One, there are some aspects of this story which I haven't heard anybody mention. We're going to mention them. The other is this. I came across this article that a friend of mine sent me, my friend Craig, regarding a... And this article, some of you may have seen this a few days ago. I didn't see it until yesterday. A Virginia country club was forced to apologize Tuesday for its... And I checked this out because I thought this was the kind of thing that... They, somebody made up and it became sort of a viral meme and you'd look it up on Snopes.com or something and it turned out to be, it would turn out to be inaccurate. Unfortunately, this is all too accurate. A Virginia country club was forced to apologize Tuesday for its 9-11 themed food menu that included such tone deaf items as a chocolate silk Pentagon pie. 2977 chowder and first responder flatbread. The 2977 chowder is for the 2,977 victims that died on September 11th. The special seafood menu was promoted by the clubhouse at Aquia Harbor. Diners looking for a taste of everything could order the never forget sampler. Um, and I hoped that this was just somebody making this up. Unfortunately, it was not. This was real. A restaurant really put together a whole 9-11 themed menu. Uh, the restaurant took this menu down and they have apologized. But this is absolutely crazy. And what I guess it underscores to me is when somebody is serving 9-11 oysters, Pentagon pie, the Freedom Flounder, and the First Responder flatbread on September 11th, what it says to me is that there are clearly, they even had a, uh, a hot crab dip with Cristini that they call the Flight 93 Redirect. Now, this restaurant took down this menu. They apologized when there was an outcry. But what this says to me is that if you live outside of New York, I think maybe a lot of people just don't get this. They don't get the magnitude of what we're what we went through, what New Yorkers went through. And George Pataki wrote a book about how New York became essentially the world became one New York neighborhood. Right. And we played you this uh, clip of John Gambling making his case, and this is from an interview we did two years ago. And I invited John uh, to join me today, but he's uh, he's in Norway, he's traveling, he was not able able to join me, but he said he'd join us in a couple of weeks when he his, finishes his travels. But John Gambling was on the air on September 11th as these towers were coming down, and John is of the belief that the that we should not go through this collective mourning. And I used to produce John's radio show. And every September 11th, 
he would not want to do really anything in terms of September 11 themes. And this was somebody that co-hosted a radio show with Rudy Giuliani every week, co-hosted a show with Mike Bloomberg every week as Bloomberg was rebuilding New York City and downtown specifically, and was on the air on September 11th. And somebody that had made his whole life broadcasting to New Yorkers. So it was not as if he didn't care about New York and care about what happened. But this is what John said. Stopping the reading of the names, I, I always questioned how long were we going to do that? Um, and, and I don't have an answer to how long you do that. So I really don't have a huge issue with them stopping this. I know I could be criticized by those who lost family members, and that I completely understand. But how long do we continue to do these sort of things? It has uh, the, the same applies to uh, the annual observation of uh, TWA Flight 800, which takes place out on Long Island. How long do we do that? I'm not suggesting that the family members don't continue to do that, but how long do we continue to make it sort of a, a, a general, uh, generic... Um, right, a national day of mourning. Right, sort of. exactly, right. I mean, I just, I, th- I think all things must end. So that was John's view. Uh, to me, September 11th is a day of solemn reflection. And it's a day where, sure, maybe some people could use an escape by watching a sporting event or watching a TV program. But for me, it's a day of prayer, of meditation, of thinking, of wondering, of remembering, right? So I I was really, I got to say, I was a little disgusted that I, I logged on to Facebook yesterday. And I see people still posting all of these same political comments and articles bashing the other political party uh, on September 11th. To me, that's something that uh, really should go by the wayside on September 11th. One of the great things, and I heard one of the callers to Dominic Carter's show uh, mention this last hour. One of the great things of September 11th, and you would think of a horrible terrorist attack, worst terrorist attack in my lifetime on American soil, and you don't necessarily think of a lot of great things. But Rudy Giuliani said, I think he told Business Insider, but I think he said the same thing on his own show and other shows as well, is September 11th for him was the worst day of his life and in some ways the best because you really got to see heroism. Now, September 11th, as horrible as it was, especially for those of us that lost friends and loved ones, were it was really inspiring to see America come together and see America really not be polarized, Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, and seeing everybody standing shoulder to shoulder, side by side. And I came across this interview that I did with Denny Hastert about six years ago. Now, Denny Hastert was one of the longest serving Republican speakers of the House, I think maybe ever, certainly in the course of the last 40 or 50 years. Uh, Obviously, he after we did this interview, he kind of became disgraced. We now know he's a criminal and very likely a pedophile. But at the time that I did this interview, we didn't know that he was disgraced. And he was the Speaker of the House on September 11th. And one of the things that I always enjoy doing, and I've done it with Rudy, done it with Denny Haster, done it with Bernie Carrick, done it with everybody, is whenever there's a moment of crisis, I really love gallows humor. And I I hate to put it that way. But in moments of crisis, war, 
major crimes, terrorist attacks in this case. There's always a moment of humor. There's always a moment of humor. There is. And sometimes it's the kind of humor you can really only experience if you're going through something tragic with someone. So Denny Haster wrote in his book, which I had read prior to interviewing him, about a very funny interaction that he had with, uh, well, I'll let him tell you. But then listen to what he says about how unified the country was and how unified Democrats and Republicans were. This is uh, an interview I did with Speaker of the former Speaker of the House, Denny Haster, probably about six or seven years ago. September 11th, probably the saddest day in both of our lifetimes. But you actually had a very, very funny story that deals with communication problems, which I think a lot of folks can relate to. I'm wondering if I can ask you to tell that. I had uh, come to Washington early that week. You usually come in on Tuesday. I came in on Monday morning to meet with the president because he he was flying out of the out of the out of D.C. Uh, the next day. So you know, at that time, the, the political setting was. We just had the Enron fiasco. The, the high-tech uh, stocks were, were falling, the, the thing that drove our economy for mm. about five years at the end of the Clinton administration, the beginning of the Bush administration. The bottom had fallen out of that uh, market. And, uh, you know, we had lost about $250 million a year just in uh, income on, on capital gains. So wow. I wanted to sit down with the president and try to look over the horizon and find out what do we have to do to make this – uh, our economy get back on track. So I had that discussion with him. So I was back in my office early on that Tuesday morning, September 11th, and uh, <clears throat> there was a knock on my door. I said, Mr. Speaker, something happened at the World Trade Tower. Either a small plane or helicopter went in. So I went upstairs, watched the TV. You saw that <clears throat> watching TV as a second plane went in. Well, I knew that was not an accident. It was an act of terrorism. And uh, we were being under attack from somebody from somewhere. And so I tried to get a hold of the White House. The vice president at that time was in the basement of the White House with the Secretary of Transportation trying to bring all our domestic and, and private aircraft down and get them landed. And, you know, we had planes coming across the Atlantic and planes coming up from South America and planes coming over from uh, Asia. And that was a huge issue. And so, but I, we were supposed to have a joint session of Congress that day with John Howard, who was the pri- prime minister of Australia, and he was giving an address to the Congress. And, you know, that's when you have a joint session, you have the sure. House and the Senate and the Grand uh, Supreme Court and the administration and Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the, you know, everybody that was something in government was all in one room. And I was thinking to myself, this is not a good idea. Huh. And so I'm trying to get a hold of the Senate. Nobody was over in the Senate. Couldn't get contact over there. So I made a, you know, I was trying to get a hold of the vice president to confirm with him that I'm going to close down Congress. As I'm having this phone conversation, or trying to get through on the secure phones, I couldn't get through. I look down on my regular phone, and it's got a little red light on when somebody's on the line. Oh, they're putting the vice president through on that line. So I push the, the button and pick the phone up. And there's this guy on the other line that says, what in the world are you guys doing up there in Capitol Hill? You know, you guys in Washington, you don't know what's going on. Taxes are too high, and on and on and on. I said, oh, I said, who is this? He said, never mind who this, who this is. Who in the hell is this? I said, I think you got the wrong number. <laughs> and put my, put, hung my phone up, and when I looked up, and my phone, my desk uh, is facing down the window, or at the window that looks right down the mall, my office right in the front of the Capitol. And I'm looking down the mall as I'm hanging up on this guy, and I see the smoke. Rolling between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial. Now, can you imagine that? 
right? That um, that he's trying to get a hold of the vice president to discuss closing Congress, and then he just gets a hold of some angry constituent instead. You know, I, I didn't mean I actually cut that clip off prematurely, but what Denny Hastert then goes on to say is that um, after after shortly thereafter, every member of Congress gathered on the steps together. And they sang God Bless America together. And that spirit of nonpartisanship and bipartisanship in time of crisis is something that I think has totally been lost. We've seen other crises. We've, we've seen Hurricane Katrina. We've seen Hurricane Sandy. Uh, we've seen the debacle in what happened in Afghanistan a year ago. We saw what happened in Benghazi, uh, you know, 10 years ago. And we have seen again and again... The the polarization that seems to divide us on such a regular basis be ever present. And I'm curious if you have a take as to why that post 9-11 aspect of unity went away, when we lost it and why we lost it. And is it possible when there's not a time of crisis to have that degree of unity so that we're all not constantly sniping at one another. 800 Because when I saw that, I, I, would see, I went on to Facebook. I just saw people posting the same sort of partisan dribble that they post every other day of the year. And I thought, that's what you're going to do on September 11th? I, I, to me, I found it very, I found it sickening. 800-848-9222. I do think part of the problem here. Part of the reason we see restaurants in Virginia offering a, a 9-11 themed menu, part of the reason we see constant polarization and folks thinking that folks they don't agree with are their enemies instead of, instead of people that they just happen to have differing opinions with is because of the lack of education about September 11th in schools. Now, I um, have been a big believer that civics education is inadequate in general. I think history education is inadequate in general. But uh, certainly, if you talk about some of the most noteworthy events in American history, events that then change the course of everything that comes after it, September 11th, other than Pearl Harbor and Fort Sumter, I think September 11th has got to be one of the most historically significant events in history. And yet, I'm sure a lot of you heard Curtis Lee well last night and, and through the 19 hours that he broadcasts on the weekend, this is really not being taught in schools. Uh, at least it's not mandated. It looks like some schools uh, get very into this and some schools don't. And I wonder what a lot of these schools outside of New York are doing. Uh, Tyler Hales, who's a, a teacher in San Diego, told KFMB about how um, how they teach September 11th related lessons in California. I'll get questions and say, you know, my parents were in a different country or they were, you know, whatever. I don't think they know anything. And interview them. They have a story. And what they realize is, you know, when they come in, they share their stories in some groups and they kind of take some notes and they all realize like everybody has a story that day. Bernie Carrick, who obviously was the police commissioner on September 11th, somebody that I know quite well and uh, somebody that um, was really heroic in terms of his leadership of the police department on September 11th. He told the website Just the News 
about how he doesn't think children are being sufficiently educated about this. I am stunned that our kids today are not taught about September 11th. You know, people people sort of put it behind them, um, basically saying, you know, it's in the past. We shouldn't talk about it. What if what if we did that with World War One or World War Two or the Korean War or the Vietnam War or any of the wars? The bottom line is the, the most devastating battleground in the history of the United States is probably one of them is probably ground zero where 3000 people died on the morning of September 11th. Innocent people died on September 11th. You know what? Nobody should forget what happened that day, and I'm stunned that schools around the country um, are not educating our youth uh, to let them know what happened so they will remember always. So I don't think people are forgetting. I think all of us that lived through, through this remember it vividly, okay? I think the problem is that some people who didn't live through this, like if you're younger than 25 years old now, you really don't remember it. You either weren't alive or you weren't old enough to understand what was going on and witness it in fir- firsthand. So I think the problem is a lack of education and the lack of teaching this as a historic event. And that's one of the reasons that I'm glad that the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, which is a, an organization that's near and dear to my heart, It's a charity that was founded in the wake of September 11th. They announced just last week that they're launching a new endeavor to ensure that future generations don't forget about this stuff. So they have launched the Tunnel to Towers 9-11 Institute. And what the goal is, is they're going to educate kindergarten through 12th grade students about the events of September 11th because most of those students were born now several years after these attacks. So I think this is a great thing that Frank Siller is doing, and I'm proud to support the efforts of the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. We're going to be participating in their walk on September 25th. If you want to help, you can go to walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com and make a small contribution to help this 9-11 education take place in schools. That's walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. I'm really not sure what kind of lessons they should be teaching about this. Obviously, the lesson that you teach a third grader is going to be very different than the lesson you teach a sixth grader. The lesson that you teach a seventh grader is going to be very different than the lesson that you teach a senior in high school. So I I think you probably have to craft the level and the graphic nature of what you're describing to the age of the person that you're teaching. And look, as father of a nine-month-old, this is something that my wife and I are going to go through when he's old enough to um, to start asking questions about what happened and to wonder, oh, how come so-and-so's father isn't around? How come this person isn't around? And, uh, you know, it's something that we're going to have to wrestle with. I'm curious how you think that education should take place. Now, again, those of us that lived through this, and that we're listening to WABC or other radio st- stations at the time and hearing reports like this one that uh, Babita Hariani and George Weber gave on September 11th in the moments after this occurred. I don't think we need a reminder. 
I think it's the younger folks. This is what happened on WABC 21 years ago. The last couple of hours, we had planes, uh, two separate planes crash into each of the World Trade Center uh, towers. Both those towers have collapsed, and we also had a plane crash into the Pentagon. We will go right now to WABC's George Weber, who is live nearby the scene uh, down in lower Manhattan. George, uh, can you tell us uh, what has been happening uh, since we last spoke to you? Well, I can tell you this, that certainly the panic part of it has subsided uh, now that we know that those buildings are gone. And believe me, it was a scary sight as we watched them in flames. I mean, uh, you talk about a day where this radio station delivered in spades in terms of serving its audience. Um, there's a couple of other aspects of the September 11th attacks that I want to I want to mention, which I feel got ignored in a lot of the coverage yesterday. I don't want to make the whole show about this because I do look, you know, I think our job is to entertain and, you know, to be, have fun and to be funny and to help people, you know, as they're driving home in the middle of the night or getting up to pee in the middle of the night or whatever the case may be to, um, you know, enjoy a couple of hours of levity. But at the same time, I do think it's important to give people an opportunity to, uh, share their perspective on some of the issues that uh, that I just mentioned. Uh, if you did not hear the audio of um, what occurred on WABC on September 11th, it was really, as far as I'm concerned, radio and journalism at its finest. And everybody that worked that day, Curtis Lewa, Ron Kuby, Phil Boyce, uh, Richard Bay, John Gambling, and of course George Weber, they did uh, an incredible job in terms of keeping people informed of what was going on at times when there were very few facts to let anybody know about. Uh, but I thought, in general, they did just a phenomenal job. You're listening to live coverage from ABC News. Of course, what's been happening all around the country, we're in a, in a terrible state of alert after both of the towers of the World Trade Center in uh, here in New York City collapsed after apparent terrorist attacks. We have finally on the line uh, WABC's George Weber, who George, is live at the scene. How are you? Are you, you there? Good, good morning. Good are you morning. okay? Yeah, I, I am. Let me We've tell been you, worried was, to death about you. I, I was very close to the first uh, collapse of the first tower, uh, maybe three blocks away. And uh, it, it was just this terrible rumbling sound. It sounded like a terrible explosion, almost like an atomic warhead going off, God forbid. And uh, the next thing I know, I look up, and there is this giant cloud of smoke and debris, and it is making a funnel all the way down the street, and there is this mad rush from thousands of people who had flooded into the streets, uh, almost stampede-like. But the one thing that I took note of was how everyone came together, picking uh, other people up off the streets and helping them along the way uh, to get them to safety as people were ducking into buildings and the like, uh, not knowing what was happening. Then a rumor had come across that another plane was heading that way, but indeed what it was, it was a fighter jet, um, uh, an Air Force fighter jet, which uh, had been circling the area uh, in a protective move, we understand. Uh, And then I was forced to evacuate the area, and I'm now probably a good 20, 25 blocks back, like uh, thousands of others. They've evacuated tens of thousands of people from that area, and we are all standing back here mesmerized like everyone else, looking on to absolutely nothing just what a lot of people have been able to see out their windows or on television, and that's that big, giant ball of smoke that just lays over downtown New York with the two uh, biggest structures missing. And this is the last thing I'll say, and then if you want to comment, you're welcome to, 800 and then we'll move on to some other things. But 
In the days following September 11th, I listened to this station uh, fastidiously, as I always had and always have since. And I thought some of the best remarks I'd heard were written by, were not written, but, but read by Richard Bay. And then a couple of years after that, Richard and I became good friends. And I told him what it me- meant to me to hear him say that. And I asked him, where did that come from? Because he, he had mentioned that he didn't write this. And this narration that you're about to hear, and then I'll take your calls at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This narration was written by a great columnist at the Miami Herald by the name of Leonard Pitts. And at the time, Richard said that he was scouring everything, trying to find someone who had put into words what all of us felt at such a time. And when he read this column, he knew that he had found it. And when I heard it, I felt this is exactly what we all felt. So uh, I know we have a lot of listeners around the country now that we're a national show, especially. And uh, I know that not everybody feels September 11th the way that we here in New York do. And I think this this narration, which, again, was based on a column written by Leonard Pitts of the Miami Herald, does as good of a job as any as capturing exactly what was going on in the country at the time and in all our hearts at the time. It's my job to have something to say. They pay me to provide words that help make sense of that which troubles the American soul. But in this moment of shock, when hot tears sting disbelieving eyes, the only thing I can find to say, the only words that seem to fit, must be addressed to that unknown author of the suffering. You monster. You beast. You unspeakable bastard. What lesson did you hope to teach us by your coward's attack on our World Trade Center, our Pentagon, on us? What was it you hoped we would learn? Whatever it was, please know that you failed. Did you want us to respect your cause? You just damned your cause. Did you want to make us fear? You just steeled our resolve. Did you want to tear us apart? You just brought us together. Let me tell you about my people. We are a vast and quarrelsome family, a family rent by racial, social, political, and class division, but a family nonetheless. Oh, we're frivolous, yes, capable of expending tremendous emotional energy on pop culture, a singer's revealing dress, a ball team's misfortune, a cartoon mouse, and we're wealthy, too, spoiled by the ready availability of trinkets and material goods, and maybe because of that we walk through life with a certain sense of blithe entitlement, We are fundamentally decent, though, peace-loving and compassionate. We struggle to know the right thing and to do it. And we are, the overwhelming majority of us, people of faith, believers in a just and loving God. Some people, you perhaps, think that any or all of this makes us weak. You're mistaken. We are not weak. Indeed, we are strong in ways that cannot be measured by arsenals. We're in pain now, we're in mourning, and we're in shock. We're still grappling with the unreality of the awful thing you did, still working to make ourselves understand that this isn't a special effect from some Hollywood blockbuster. It isn't the plot development from a Tom Clancy novel. You've bloodied us as we've never been bloodied before. But there's a gulf of difference between making us bloody and making us fall. This is the lesson Japan was taught to its bitter sorrow the last time anyone hit us this hard, the last time anyone brought us such abrupt and monumental pain. 
When roused, we are righteous in our outrage, terrible in our force. When provoked by this level of barbarism, we will bear any suffering, pay any cost, go to any length in the pursuit of justice. I tell you this without fear of contradiction. I know my people as you, I think, do not. What I know reassures me. We'll go forward from this moment sobered, chastened, sad, but determined to. Unimaginably determined. You see, the steel in us is not always readily apparent. That aspect of our character is seldom understood by people who don't know us well. On this day, the family's bickering is put on hold. As Americans, we will weep. As Americans, we will mourn. And as Americans, we will rise in defense of all that we cherish. So I ask you again, what was it you hoped to teach us? It occurs to me that maybe you just wanted us to know the depths of your hatred. If that's the case, consider the message received and take this message in exchange. You don't know my people. You don't know what we're capable of. And you don't know what you just started. But you're about to learn. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. something good a great song and i don't know if some of you i don't know if you remember this but cbs fm in new york great radio station i that's where i really became a fan of cousin brucey i know a lot of you have been following since him since wnbc or wabc some of you maybe even from wins but i became a fan of cousin brucey on cbs fm and um they had a show in the morning named after this song which was also the theme song. And they would tell the listeners about a positive, true event that happened that day. And I know other radio stations around the country have probably done the similar concept. But I always thought that was very clever, and I always thought that was a good way to 
put people in a good mood for the day. Well, let me tell you about something that is a, a positive, uniquely New York story, and that is bagels. Oh, yes, bagels. A friend of mine said to me just yesterday, I think this is his words to me, not my words. He said, and this is a very accomplished guy. He's a writer, a historian, and he happened to be in my neighborhood. Uh, on the weekends at my house, you just never know who's going to pop up, right? There are writers, there are politicians, there are cops, there are uh, vagrants, there are protesters. You just never know who's going to show up. So this fellow says to me, I think the bagel is even more of a uniquely New York food than pizza is. And he said this in front of my wife. My wife said, what? Really? And he said, yeah. You know, I've had good pizza in Jersey. I've had good pizza in Connecticut. I've had good pizza in Chicago, in Florida, in California, in Greece, in Italy. But I can honestly say I've never really had a good bagel outside of New York. So Sunday morning, my wife had a a long drive. She drove all the way out to her family on Long Island yesterday, two and a half hours. And then we spent the day out there, two and a half hours driving back. So obviously... She was exhausted this morning. So I got up with our son Sunday morning around 6 when he got up so that she could hopefully sleep a little while. And we, we don't generally have bagels in the house because, look, bagels are they're junk food, honestly. I mean, they're empty calories. They're empty calories that you put more empty calories on, whether you prefer butter, cream cheese, or jelly. I mean, it's, it's just it's got to be the worst food that you can eat on a regular basis, other than maybe pure sugar. So um, my wife... I felt was entitled to a little bit of a treat because she had done such a yeoman's job driving and staying awake. And she was, you know, she had a rough day on Saturday because of it. So she wakes up Sunday morning, maybe around 7.15 or so, 7.30. And she says in words or substance, you know, I could really go for a bagel. Where do you order from? Can I order online Uber Eats? I said, honey, no, don't order. I'll go out. I'll go out and, and get them. We have two very good bagel stores in our neighborhood. I'll go out and get them. Really? You don't mind? And she says, no, I don't mind. She says, all right, get a dozen. Make sure you get half everything. She says to me, you always only get two everything, but everything is the most popular bagel. And whenever we have people stop by, they always want an everything bagel. And I said, honey, I think I did that once. I got two everything bagel. But I've been so chastened by that experience and that lecture that you gave me about insufficient numbers of everything bagels. And I now always go overboard on the everything bagel. So I'm getting ready to leave. And at that very moment, my mother sends us both an SMS text message. And she said, hey, uh, I really miss my grandson. I'd love to come over and see him. If he's awake, and I'd love to come over. And, of course, she's always welcome, like anybody in the family is. And uh, do you need anything? And I said, oh, boy, maybe this is saving me a trip to the bagel store and I could stay in my robe for another hour or so. Maybe this is saving us uh, an Uber Eats delivery or something. I said, well, we were, I was just about to go get bagels. My mom says, don't worry about it. I'll pick them up. Great. What kind do you want? You can get a dozen assorted, but just get half everything. And and a scallion cream cheese would be great. Great. Okay. All right. Now, so now we're sitting pretty. My mother arrives. Dozen bagels. And uh, a couple of mini bagels. And then, just so happens, my friend Vinny calls me. Says the words, do you want bagels? Completely 
I mean, imagine this three separate bagel related conversations says the words, do you want bagels? I said, no, 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 no. Actually, my mother's coming over. She's bringing bagels right now. She says, well, do you have enough for me and Lena? I said, yes. Lena's his daughter. Yes, come on over. We're going to have bagels aplenty. So now this is turning into an exciting Sunday morning breakfast extravaganza. So Vinny gets there, brought a couple of his own bagels. He said, I know you said you have bagels, but what can I say? I'm obsessive. All right. So we all sit around. My wife takes the bagels out of the container, takes the cream cheeses out of the container, takes out our own butter, which we now no longer keep in the refrigerator. And so we're all gathered. And and I say to my mother, where did you get these bagels from? And she names a place. I'm not going to mention it because I don't want to dog anybody. But she names a place that the bagels are just terrible, absolutely terrible. I said, what? What do you mean you got it from there? And she said, well, I, I, I said, you have, and I mentioned another bagel store, which I'm not going to mention because they're not an advertiser. You have such and such right by your block. That place is great. You, you're walking distance from such and such. Why wouldn't you go there? And she says, because whenever I go in there, the line is always out the door. Whenever I go to XYZ place... There's never anyone in there. I said, Mom, don't you see that's why there's never anyone in there? Because the bagels are terrible. These are terrible bagels. These have got to be the worst bagels that you could find in the South Shore of Staten Island. So my wife suffers through one of these bagels. I have one of the mini bagels. And I don't say anything, but obviously I have now just told the whole neighborhood to come over for bagels. My cousin Deanna, my sister Claudia. Um, you know, my Uncle Steve, everybody. And I'm embarrassed now that we have these subpar bagels. So I order on Uber Eats another 11 bagels from a far better bagel store. And meanwhile, Vinny gets to eat his own bagel that he brought from one of the good bagel stores. He does a taste test comparing one of his bagels to the one of the ones that my mom brought. And the bottom line is it's night and day, night and day. 20 minutes later, the bagels that I've now ordered arrived, and they're hot, and they're soft, and they're perfect. They're perfect. And I tried one of these bagels. No comparison. Night and day. But here's the issue. We now have over 20 bagels. And even, you know, I'm inviting people over. This person has one. This person has two. This person takes one home to his wife. This person takes one home. But there's still a bagel surplus. There's a bagel glut. And so my wife doesn't want to freeze all these bagels. Oh, I don't want them in the house. We're not going to let them go bad. She says, what are we going to do with all these bagels? I said, give me a few. I'll take them to work. The people at our radio station, they'll eat anything. And she said, all right, well, do you want to give them the good bagels or the bad bagels? And I'm thinking, I said, well, some of these guys are not going to notice the difference. Some of these guys like Curtis, they'll eat anything. But I don't answer. I'm thinking. Because I'm trying to do the right thing by everybody. But Rachel says, all right, we got to give them the good bagels. So she parcels out six or seven good bagels from the good bagels, puts them in a Ziploc bag, and I brought them. So they're now in the kitchen along with a cream cheese and a, and a, lox, a scallion cream cheese and a lox spread that's in the refrigerator. 
So these are solid. Now I can't wait. These are solid quality bagels that are in the kitchen. My my strong recommendation is that you eat them before the morning show people get here. Absolutely. Because these are very good bagels. Very now, good bagels. you like a hot bagel. I do. I mean, it's not hot anymore. Right. I don't like them hot because it melts the cream cheese. Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I like a little a little melting. Or, or And I was experimenting with butter today because after our butter conversation, I was I, I wanted to see what all the fuss was about. So I put some butter on one. I had a half with butter and a half with scat, with uh, lox spread because I'm a lox fanatic. And uh, I liked it hot. But whatever. It's cool now. So now if you want it hot, you'd have to uh, you'd have to throw it in the toaster oven. But it's still soft enough that I wouldn't toast it. I mean, I, I think you should only really toast a bagel if it's if it's frozen or it's old, you know. But that's that. So that's where we are in terms of uh, that's where we are in terms of bagels. We, so we still have some of these bad bagels at our house. Hopefully, we'll be able to get rid of them, but we'll see. All right, we'll take your calls in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. A lot of you have been uh, patiently holding. I'm going to try and get to as many of your calls here. And we have no guests today, so there's going to be plenty of opportunity for you and I to speak about whatever you like. Uh, bagels, space, you name it. 800, uh, September 11th, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Let me say hello to Mary Beth on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Good morning. I'm glad I do not like bagels because all that talk of bagels would have made me have to go out and get one. <laughs> I am so glad I don't like them. Well, good. Good for you. Good for you, Mary Beth. But um, I hope you did enjoy them. Um, you know, you gave so much information in a very short period of time about 9-11. Um, I, I love the fact that the Tunnel to Towers program wants to implement an educational, you know, component to this. Is this going to be New York related, national? Do you know? My understanding is it's going to be around the country. I haven't spoke with Frank Siller about it uh, directly yet, but uh, my understanding is they're going to seek to do this around the country. That's wonderful. And it's so needed. Um, you know, Frank, I, I called with an another comment to your call screener, but after listening to all you said, I, I would just like to say um, two other things, if you don't mind. Sure, absolutely. Talking about. Um, first of all, during 9-11, I was freelancing for a newspaper in New York City, and obviously for over two years, if not more, so many of the stories were nine-related um, articles. Um, these were feature stories. And at one point, 
I went to a firehouse in Queens to talk about with them about everything that people from around the country were doing to thank them for their work. And I went about a year after the actual event and, you know, things were still coming in and they showed me two books they put together. And these were letters from children from all over the country and drawings. And some of them, you know, the firefighters said it brought tears to their eyes, but some things that children say are really laughable as well. Um, and I think you'll go through this with Carmine. And some of the things, um, one little boy from Kansas, from a very small town, wrote a letter saying, dear fireman, please tell me when it's safe to go back in a building. And I thought, you know, that's really profound, a kid living outside New mm. York City. I mean, it was very profound, but it was also you could chuckle a bit, you know, a year later that a child would think of something like that. And this morning, I took my little nieces to a very small memorial that is set up in my neighborhood. Um, it was to honor a man who used to live in this community. And um, it's just a pretty little memorial that the Boy Scouts originally put up. And we put flowers down for them. And my little six-year-old niece said out loud, Dear God, please don't let another building fall mm. on people. And I thought, out of the mouths of babes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think you could say it much better than that. And the thing is, these are New York kids. And, you know, their families are telling them things, you know, age-appropriate. But it is so important to inform people across the country because when I heard that story about the menus that you, you spoke about, yeah. I mean, who can imagine? Did they think that oh. was funny? No. That was a marketing idea? Yeah, and How again, Mary Beth, before I saw that story, I was not planning to talk about it. But to me, it was a stunning reminder of how uh, how much people outside of New York don't remember what what happened. I mean, to me, I can't believe anybody would do that. I mean, it's just forget about 21 years later. I can't imagine 100 years from now wanting to do something like that. I mean, to me, it's just uh, to, to say it's in poor taste is a dramatic understatement. And I don't know. I don't know what the people that put together that menu thought they were doing. I don't know if they thought they were being funny or thought they were uh, paying a tribute of some sort. But I don't know how you think that that's an okay thing to do. And the only thing I could chalk it up to was ignorance. I don't think it's malice. I think it's ignorance. 800-848-9222. Loretta is in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Um, uh, I love the bagel se- uh, segment. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, I'm glad we uh, I'm glad we dialed nine one one and got those uh, those new bagels in. I mean, <laughs> re- saved the day. Although my mother was a little perturbed, and uh, I felt bad for her, but but I'm glad we 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 couldn't serve people subpar bagels. Can't do it. Right. Um, it, it made my mouth water for a remembrance of bagels. Uh, I haven't had one in years since I've lost 150 pounds. Oh, good for you. That is not easy. Uh, as somebody that's lost 20 pounds and 30 pounds a couple of times, I know how difficult that is. I can't imagine 150. Good for you. That's divine intervention. Oh, God bless you. No, no, exactly. He does. And um, uh, I, I'd rather spend my calories wiser 
You're right about empty calories. There. Yeah. Oh, no doubt. It's the worst thing you you could eat. Um, I got about thirty seconds here, Loretta. What okay. would you want to say? Well, um, uh, about nine eleven, uh, it 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 goes beyond bad taste what that restaurant did, but they may have been, it may be a money making gimmick. Maybe they thought uh, people would order it uh, because it's something new and different and. Um, it's just bad judgment, maybe mercenary. Uh, Loretta, I think you're right. Thank you very much uh, for the call. Congratulations on your weight loss. I'm glad you're doing so well now. Thank you for calling. Um, Next hour, I'll continue with your calls. We'll do some other fun things as well. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. September 11th or September 11th weekend, as was the case this weekend. And you don't want to deal with watching memorials and replaying all this horrible stuff that happened and doing the retrospective and listening to all these horrible stories of people that went through this tragedy or that tragedy or witnessed this tragedy or that tragedy. And you don't want to cry all day. Sometimes... Um, you still feel like you want to do something that's not completely self-directed and not completely hedonistic, then the question becomes, what can you do, right? Uh, What can you do if you don't want to think about what happened on September 11th, but you still want to do something that's not just sitting on a beach all day? Although yesterday, at least in the New York area, Unlike what happened 21 years ago when it was beautiful weather, beautiful, clear day, uh, yesterday was horrible weather. It was muggy all day. It was uh, dreary. It was cloudy. It was gray. It was wet. It was just hard. It was not exactly beach weather. And one of the things that I like to do is good deeds. And when I, when I say good deeds, it doesn't have to be a grandiose good deed like uh, donating a kidney or donating an organ, which I'm all for, by the way. And again, we have a lot of listeners that are trying to get kidneys and are in need of kidneys. And if you want to donate a kidney, please email me. And uh, if you're a match, I'd love to try and connect you with one of our needy kidney recipients. Uh, You can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. But There's a lot of good that can be done with small and simple kind gestures. Small and simple kind gestures have immense and completely underestimated power. When it comes to doing nice things for others, a little goes a long way. And this should encourage all of us to put in that extra little bit of effort to make someone smile. Researchers demonstrated the power 
of small acts of kindness in a new study published in the Journal of Experimental Psychology. Listen to this. The researchers conducted a series of experiments with different acts of kindness, such as offering someone a ride home or covering the cost of someone's cup of coffee. In one experiment, study participants at an ice skating rink in Chicago on a cold winter day gave other skaters hot chocolate for free. Then both parties were asked to rate how much the gesture was worth. Just a free cup of hot chocolate. That's it. The givers, the people that gave the hot chocolate, consistently undervalued how much the hot cocoa meant to the recipients. For the recipients, that cup of hot cocoa, what does it cost? $1.50, $2.25 with inflation? That cup of hot cocoa meant a great deal. So this study is very similar to another recent paper that was published in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology that showed we underestimate the power of reaching out to friends, family, and colleague, colleagues. And a, a quick call or a text message makes a big difference, according to the authors of this study. And I'm going to link to this um, the, the, the more recent study from the Journal of Experimental Psychology. If you want to read it, uh, it's go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Moranofan. I find this uh, so interesting, um, facebook.com slash Moranofan. I think this holds true so much. The small gesture of kindness is something that can have a lot of goodwill with people. It's someone that can have a tremendous impact on people's lives on a day-to-day basis. So what I'd love to do is, now that you know this, now that everybody listening knows the power of a small act of kindness, I'd love to get your suggestions on something that people can do today. I just mentioned one in keeping with the previous study, which is reach out to a friend or a family member or a colleague with a phone call or a text message. Simple as that. But is there anything else that you could suggest to someone that wants today at work, at the grocery store, at at a restaurant, in their neighborhood, they just want to do a small act of kindness for someone, what would you suggest? 800-848-9222. The fact that we routinely misjudge the impact of our own actions matters for our behavior. Amit Kumar, who's a psychology professor at uh, UT Austin and one of the authors of this Journal of Experimental Psychology study, told the New York Times, quote, not knowing one's positive impact can stand in the way of people engaging in these sorts of acts of kindness in daily life. Bottom line is, now you know. If you do something small, not talking about making a, a $10 million donation, talking about buying someone a cup of coffee, whatever the case may be, giving somebody a ride that needs one, it makes a big difference with people. 800-848-9222 if you have a suggestion for someone that can, uh, you know, that will, that will do this. So when in doubt, make the phone call, offer up that last chocolate chip cookie, 
or let the stressed out person cut in line, it, it means a lot more than you think. But if you have a suggestion in terms of a random act of kindness or a small gesture, a small kind gesture that somebody can do today, please, um, you know, let us know what you think. 800-848-9222 would love some uh, examples that people can utilize in their own life. Um, I have a completely unrelated note, but I have to mention this, and I, I'm, I'm not going to have time to mention this at another point. I've spent a lot of time on this program covering the what's going on in many yeshivas in the New York area. Not all yeshivas, but many. And it's not just New York City because it goes on in Brooklyn. It goes on in Rockland County. It goes on in some yeshivas on uh, Long Island. It goes on in some yeshivas in Orange County. And as far as I'm concerned, what is happening in a lot of yeshivas in our area is nothing short of criminal. And the and I want to get into it now, so no need to call in about this, because I'm working on putting together a big segment on this one, one day next week, because we've had a lot of people that have been critical of yeshiva education and what the yeshivas do, and then someone always calls and calls my guest a Nazi or uh, says we should have somebody to debate the other side. So I'm working on putting together a debate for next week between someone who's critical of what's going on in the yeshivas and someone who's not. So why are we talking about this right now? Well, front page above the fold, New York Times on Sunday. Regardless of what you think of the New York Times, this article that they have done on Hasidic Jewish yeshivas and how they've benefited from public money while not educating the students that go to this school. This article is a masterful piece of journalism. So I'm linking to it on my Facebook page, and I hope you read it before we do this segment next week. Uh, 800-84, excuse me, facebook.com slash Fan. if you want to read it. It's facebook.com slash Fan. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I think what's gone on in these yeshivas is criminal. And the fact that these politicians not uh, look, the two most egregious examples are Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio. But it goes beyond that. Uh, A lot of local officials as well. But the fact that these politicians like Andrew Cuomo and Bill de Blasio have allowed this to go on for so long because they were in the pocket of the political cousins of these yeshivas is something that I think is completely egregious. So I just linked to the article. If you didn't read it, uh, please read it. I I sent it to some other folks that I know, so hopefully we'll be able to have a good debate on this subject one day next week. But uh, one of the things the Times did, and the Times is being attacked by this by a lot of folks, but one of the things the Times did, which I thought was wonderful, is they published this article not just in English but in Yiddish as well. So hopefully some people that don't read English so well – but do read Yiddish, they'll also find out what's going on in these in these yeshivas. It's really a, a masterful article as far as I'm concerned. So if you want to read it, you can do so. Facebook.com slash Moranofan. But what I'd love to hear now, we have one, two open lines. I would love to hear your suggestions for a small, kind gesture that someone can do 
today. Could be at the workplace, could be at school, could be in the car, could be at the restaurant, could be at a diner, could be wherever in the neighborhood. Give me some suggestions that people can utilize. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How are you? Um, so uh, I actually believe in um, doing small things for people. I believe it's good karma. Uh, my wife, uh, she agrees with me. And uh, when we flew home from Fort Lauderdale last year over the holidays, I uh, um, we, we had a, like a payway thing inside the airport. I left an extra $150 for the uh, for our waitress. She was like limping and she's kind of old. She's very sweet and she just wait, wait. So, uh, just because uh, t- you broke up there a little bit, John, I missed a little bit of what you said. You were at, you were in the airport and you went to a restaurant at the airport? Yeah, and uh, I left a $150 tip for the waitress. Wow, that is very generous. That's a lot bigger than the kind of small act of kindness that I'm talking about, which is like a chocolate chip cookie or something. Now, did were you present when the waitress saw that she was getting a $150 tip? Oh, when I wrote it, I told her to go bring her manager and uh, just have them put it through right now so that they didn't think it was a mistake or anything. And how did she and, react? Um, she She was speechless. She started crying. She gave me a hug. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. Now, uh, I think that's, um, uh, look, that's very generous. And uh, that is not necessarily what this uh, study in the Journal of uh, Psychology is talking about. But uh, I think that's wonderful. If you could do that, you'll make someone's day, someone's week. That's wonderful. What did she do? I'm just curious. What did she do that you found so, so nice or so impressive? Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't as much as that as um, it was. It was uh, almost Christmas, and uh, she just looked sad. And she was kind of. She had a limp. She was like limping around. She's moving slow. And she looked like she was hurt. Well, that, yeah, uh, that's very that. nice of you, John. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much, John. See, I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about something small that you can do to improve someone else's day. Because these two studies both say the same thing which is you don't think you're doing a you don't think you're making a big difference but the recipient does so uh i think that's i think that's very nice now i do want to comment on this very briefly the N- nasa you know we like to cover the space program and what's happening with space nasa is going to use a spacecraft later this month to test a planetary defense method that could one day save Earth. How often have we talked about this? That I don't think that the planet has a good plan for protecting us from a killer asteroid. Well, they're trying to develop one. To their credit, NASA is trying to develop one. They have, they have the double asteroid redirect test, or DART See, D-A-R-T, double asteroid redirect test. It's going to be used as a battering ram to crash into an asteroid not far from Earth on September 26th. The mission is an international collaboration to protect the globe from future asteroid impacts. I think this is really cool. So they're going to use a spacecraft on September 26th to test this planetary defense method. Uh, Nick Moskovitz, who's a planetary astronomer from Lowell Observatory, 
talked about this on NASA's YouTube page and exactly what they're trying to do. The dark spacecraft will be hitting an asteroid called Dimorphos, special because it's a binary asteroid, which means a satellite around a larger asteroid called Didymos, and DART will actually be hitting Dimorphos. And what we will be measuring is how much DART changes the orbit of Dimorphos around Didymos. So this is an important test for planetary defense mitigation strategies in case we ever have to do this for real. So NASA says that after the final maneuver on September 25th, approximately 24 hours before the impact, the navigation team will know the position of that asteroid, Dimorphos, within two kilometers. From there, DART will be on its own to autonomously guide itself to collision with this out-of-this-world space rock. Now, I'm sure there are some of you out there, you're welcome to call in if this applies to you, 800-848-9222, that think that NASA is just telling us that this is a test, that they're just telling us that this is a dry run, and in actuality that there is a killer asteroid that is heading our way in September twenty on September 25th and 6th, and that this is their way of fighting it. And meanwhile, they don't want panic, so they just tell us this is a test. I hope that's not the case, but look, we've seen the government keep us in the dark before, right? Or in this case, in the dark before. Uh, ba-dum-bum. 800-848-9222. Elena is in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hello, Elena. Good morning, Frank. Hi. I wanted to share uh, something that I do to a special gentleman that works at our stop and shop. He uh, does the carriages. And that's not an easy job, especially when it's raining or snowing or it's very, very, very busy because the carriages are heavy and they have to be guided back to their uh, place closer to the store. So every so often when I'm shopping and I see him working, I'll pick up lunch for him. I'll pick up a sandwich or a salad or something at the deli. So that's what I wanted to share that. It's a very nice person and he really appreciates it. He's just such such a, a... a godly person. Uh, I, I needed to share that. That's wonderful. I'm glad. I'm so glad you do that, Elena. That's a great suggestion for people that want to do something small and nice for people uh, today or any other day. That's wonderful. And I'll tell you, just in terms of giving, doing something small like that, my aunt Camille, who I've talked about before, who I may swing by today, who uh, is an egg salad master, right? Um, I'm hoping to pick up some today, but she goes to church every day. So she doesn't drive anymore. She Her eyesight is not so great, and, uh, you know, she's a little older now, so she doesn't drive. So one of every day she gets a ride from somebody. Now, she is eligible for accessor ride. She could take accessor ride, but usually she gets a ride. And I can tell you, I, I mean, this costs nobody that's giving her a ride any effort. Maybe it's another two or three minutes to their trip. And it really does mean a lot to my Aunt Camille. And my Aunt Camille's praying all day long. She's probably, if she's awake right now, she's probably not listening to me. She's probably praying. And I really think it counts for something, not only with her, but with God. <laughs> that she's spending all this time praying for these people that give her rides home. And uh, they, they said, I think they even put that in the bulletin one time, which is that's one of the most common phrases that you hear daily after church was, does Camille have a ride? So... 
I think um, something like that, buying lunch for somebody or giving them a ride, I think it really does count for a lot. But if you have a suggestion of a a small, small, I'm not talking about what uh, John Freehold did, a small act of kindness that um, you'd suggest that somebody else may want to try, because some people just may not know what to do. My wife and I go through this at the house. Now, I know my wife wants me to do more chores, but sometimes I feel like I'm caught up and I know she wants me to do more. And she hasn't said, well, I need you to do this. Sometimes people just don't know. So if someone wants to build good karma points, like John Freehold is talking about, or like Elena is talking about, what's something small they could do? Because psychologically, according to these two studies, it makes a big difference. Uh, and again, I think the easiest thing to do is to reach out to a friend or a, uh, somebody, or a relative, somebody you haven't spoken to in a long time, that might be feeling neglected and... Reach out to them. Give them your best. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in Babylon. Hello, Eddie. Thank you, Frank. Um, let me take your speaker phone. You can hear me. Um, coming from a fire department family with good deeds, I just want to tell you that we honor death um, just the way we honor life. So I honor you for your feelings and sentiments about 9-11. But I, I, will, I used to pay for people behind me at the toll booth that I didn't know, and then they would catch up to me in traffic and give me the thumbs up and go, thank you so much. Um, I always let ladies first when I'm when I'm at a counter. I would say, no, you, you go ahead. That's okay. And I make the joke, uh, don't worry, don't make me late to the accident that I won't be in. <laughs> and then once my my ex-girlfriend, Camille, a very special name, Frank, you just mentioned. Absolutely. Aunt, we're out in Hampton Bays, and she goes, Eddie, that's um, Nicole Kidman, and Heath Ledger behind us. Well, I didn't look back, and I gave the guy a twenty at the uh, at the cash register. I said, "Pay for that uh, that couple behind us, okay?" And I took my girlfriend Camille, and I gave her the biggest smooch. I said, "And I love you, baby. You're the greatest." And we just walked out. We never said a word to him. One day when we meet him, we'll say, "Hey, you remember the guy that bought you a cup of coffee?" <laughs> well, well, Heath Ledger's dead now, so you can't. You can't... Oh, oh, yeah. Well, whoever she was dating at the time, I don't know, but. Frank, all good deeds. I'm a Methodist, but I, I, um, and it says that do all you can for everybody you can as long as you can everywhere you can. That was John Wesley. And I said, I saw that on a church wall and I said, this is the place I'm supposed to be. Thank you, Frank, for your heart. You, you, you want a lifelong, um, fan, uh, just talking about, you know, 9 11 and how you feel about it and never forgetting because when you honor people in life, in death, you also have honor for people in life, and this is what you do with your good deeds and all. And uh, my, my suggestion to you, like Camille said to me, just be the best Eddie you can be. I go, no, no, tell me what you want. I said, tell me how high you want me to jump. Tell me how high you want me to jump, Eddie, because when someone puts the love in your life, like Huey Lewis in the, in the song The Power of Love, it can take you down, it can draw you out, or it can give you all the energy in your life. And your lady must give you some energy to keep you – you're on the radio all night, and, you know, then you're doing a double shift and you want to stay in your bathrobe. Okay, <laughs> bagels, Wally's Bagels in North Babylon. Get a toasted sesame with cream cheese. It's a crunch and then a sweet delight, my friend, with a cup of coffee. Th- right. Thank you, Eddie. I appreciate that. Very kind. Thank you. You know, my friend Danielle, who I've talked about before, we've played the uh, the audio – of her on the show on this show before. 
she uh, is, you know, she uh, she is somebody that I, I really admire. And, we're, you know, we're pretty close friends. And she gave a uh, a kidney to a co-worker and not even a co-worker that she knew that well. Um, but what she always says, because I, I always have her and my Uncle John on whenever we talk about kidney donation and things of that nature, because both of them were living kidney donors, which I think takes a lot of a lot of courage. And it's a very generous thing. And what Danielle always says, you know, if you can't give an organ, give blood. If you can't give blood, give your time, volunteer. And I always always found that a very positive message, a very great way to uh, pay it forward. You know, I'm reminded of a parable that of all people Mario Cuomo used to tell because, um, well, it doesn't matter why he used to tell, but I, I first read it from Mario Cuomo. And, and it has to do with an Arab and a sparrow, right? And an Arab is walking around, and he sees a sparrow on his back with his claws up in the air. The Arab, and I don't know why it's an Arab. I guess it could be anybody of any ethnicity. But in this particular parable that Mario Cuomo used to tell, I'm not sure where he heard it. But in the Mario Cuomo version of this, this parable, it was a, an Arab. So the Arab says to the sparrow, what are you doing? And the sparrow says to the Arab, well, I've heard the sky is going to fall today, and I'm trying to stop it from falling. And the Arab says to the sparrow, you're not going to be able to do anything. You're just one tiny little bird, and if the sky really is falling, how are you going to stop it? And the sparrow says, we all do what we can, meaning no matter how little, you do what you can. And that I think about that all the time because, look, very few of us are going to be able to change the world with one action. Some, some people can. But you could really improve someone's day by buying them a free cup of hot chocolate, by buying the fellow at the grocery store lunch, by uh, doing any number of these things. So I'm curious if you have some suggestions of something people can do. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Yesterday, I'll tell you, you know, you know, some of the most accurate words that I heard last week were Brian Kilmeade saying that he got the impression that people were really just ready for football again, like like he hadn't seen in a long time. And that was my observation as well. I watched a little bit of the Jet game, watched a little bit of the Giant game, very little, meaning a, a few downs. Jets lost. Giants came from behind. What a win they had. That was impressive. But 
especially with the Mets in first place, headed towards the playoffs, uh, even though they've been struggling, I really don't think about football to any great length until baseball season is over, at least until my team is out of it, the New York Metropolitans. And (laughs) I don't know if you saw the news about the changes that are coming to Major League Baseball uh, next year, but uh, they're very interesting. They're pretty significant. I'm not crazy about the changes that they have in place that now. We, the universal designated hitter and uh, the, the, the new playoff structure. I have mixed feelings about the new playoff structure. But they have this um, competition committee. And some of these changes that they're making I think are good. But some, I think, are way out of whack. So um, I think what we've seen with baseball, under the leadership of the current commissioner, Rob Manford, is that this is a sport that is searching for its identity. What do we want to be? Do we want to be a sport that uh, does what we can to appeal to younger players by doing things like banning tickets and making sure that to go to a game you need an NFT? Do we want to recognize the fact that our fans are older and service our older fans? Do we want to have this ridiculous second base rule and extra innings? And they are looking to do a couple of things in baseball that I think they think will lead to greater viewership or younger viewership which I think is a mistake. They're looking to increase offense and they're looking to quicken the game's pace. So they actually, they actually had major league baseball had an 11 person competition committee. And they imagine that they needed a committee to come up with changes to baseball sports been, as far as I'm concerned, Pretty much just fine for 150 years. Let's find out how we can change it. So, whatever. I don't want to say that I'm opposed to it for the sake sake of uh, being opposed to it. It can't be like Groucho Marx, right? Whatever it is, I'm against it. So, I try to look at all these changes with an open mind. And some of them are okay. Some of them are okay. This is Rob Manford on MLB.com talking about these rules changes for 2023. And then we'll analyze them. We'll take some of your calls on it as well. There was an ongoing conversation, expression of concern about the way we are playing the game on the field. Um, we've tried to address the concerns expressed in a thoughtful way, respectful always of the history and traditions of the game and of player concerns. On the player front, I'd point out that even when we had an opportunity to enact rule changes Um, Earlier in my tenure, we decided not to do it um, in an effort because of our desire to work with the players on these changes. Our guiding star in thinking about changes to the game has always been our fans. What do our fans want to see on the field? We've conducted thorough and ongoing research with our fans, and certain things are really clear. Number one, fans want games with better pace. Two, fans want more action, more balls in play. And three, fans want to see more of the athleticism of our great players. With these 
key fan base desires in mind, we've engaged in a process to develop rules that will bring back the best form of baseball for the benefit of our fans. So what are they doing? <clears throat> the 11-person competition committee. My goodness. You know what they say about committees, right? They say a donkey is a horse that was built by a committee. So um, the 11-person competition committee voted to restrict defensive shifts. Now, I kind of like that. I kind of like that. What are we talking about defensive shifts? If you haven't watched a game in the last 10 years, these defensive shifts have proliferated in the last few years. Uh, Basically, you have the third baseman playing over by second base, you have the shortstop playing somewhere between first base and second base, and they they have these players, their batting habits and their hitting habits mapped out to such an extent that they know where all those hits are going to be, and they're moving these players around, and it's annoying to me to see the third baseman playing in center field or some crazy shift that they have. So they're doing away with that, which I'm actually okay with. Because I feel like it makes it more like baseball used to be. Two infielders positioned on each side of second base when the pitch is released. What else are they doing? They are, I, I, I hate to say this, I think this is idiotic, okay? They are increasing the size of the bases. What? Increasing the size of the bases? Is that really the problem in baseball? The bases are too small? I've been watching baseball my whole life. I've been playing baseball my whole life. Never in my life have I watched a game and said, you know, I think this game would be a lot better paced and a lot more fun to watch if the bases were bigger. Come on. Come on. Frank, if you add in, too, as well, the the base runners already have that extended glove on their hand so, like, they don't get spiked by the cleat. Right. You ever see that? So you make the base bigger. The, the damn extension's already, like, what, like four or five inches on their hand? I think that's absurd. It, it is absolutely absurd. They've also, and this has been coming for a long time. They've been talking about this for 25 years. They're instituting a pitch clock, okay? It's like basketball has a, a shot clock, how football has a play clock. And so beginning next season, a pitch clock will be set to 15 seconds between pitches when the bases are empty and it'll count down from 20 seconds with at least one runner on base. With a runner aboard, a pitcher will be limited in each plate appearance to two pickoff attempts. What? You're going to limit pitchers to two pickoff attempts? What, what, what if, I mean, so much of the strategy of base running can be to try to draw uh, a pickoff attempt. And uh, I mean, this is crazy. What happens if they if they if they use up both their pick up, pick off attempts? Now the base runner knows they can't do it exactly. again. Exactly, and that's why it's so dumb. So after that, a pickoff throw will result in a balk. And for those of you that aren't familiar with balks, basically um, that means all the base runners get to move up one, um, unless the pitcher is successful in obtaining an out. You know what this means? Essentially, there will be no pickoffs. There'll be no pickoffs. Maybe you'll see. I mean, you're going to see people do one pickoff attempt. No one's going to risk a second pickoff attempt. Th- then they should limit the the distance that a, a player can lead off the base then. Yeah. If, well, if that's I, the case. And if a base runner advances, the pickoff step-off count of two will be reset. Additionally, the batter will be required to be in the batter's box and ready 
with eight seconds remaining on the pitch clock. So you're going to have the batter uh, and the pitcher all with these like Mission Impossible style synchronized watches. I got to be in the box with eight seconds. You got to be. I hate this. What a mess. This is absurd. What's the penalty if you don't abide by the pitch clock? Um, I, I, I have to look at that. I, I have to look at that. I'm, uh, I, I did see that in one of the articles that I read yesterday. Let me double check that one. But the bases will increase in size to 18 inches square from 15 inches now in the protect in, in the hopes. This is what they say. The players are opposed to all these changes, by the way. Uh, they're there, which <laughs> I mean, who could blame them? The um, bases are going to increase in size from 15 inches to 18 inches in the hopes of protecting the health of the players. The chances of a first baseman having his foot stepped on should decrease. As an added measure, the bigger bases could encourage more stolen bases, which is clearly what they want. This this limiting of the pickoff attempts and the bigger bases, they want more stolen bases. They want more offense. So um, this is absurd. The uh, I just, look, whatever. I guess they say the only constant is change. Years ago... In the 1880s, walks used to count as hits, right? So we've seen different changes in baseball throughout history. Before 1974, there was no designated hitter in either league. Uh, in the 1910s, there used to be the dead ball era, right? So there are different changes that we that we make. And Rob Manford, who I think knows that at this point nobody likes him in terms of the fan, he noted that he had the power to act earlier in his tenure on the rule changes but opted not to out of a desire to work with the players. As for the players voting against the new rules, uh, Manfred said that because the players are grouped into different positions, pitchers and position players and catchers, it's hard to get consensus from the players on changing the game. Yeah, because this is the game they've been playing their whole lives. Why would they want to change it? So before planned implementation of this, the proposed rules changes were tested in more than 8,000 minor league games dating back to last season. Uh, The pitch clock was tested in minor league baseball this season with different time allowances than will appear in major league baseball. In the minors, pitchers were allowed 14 seconds between pitches and 18 seconds with at least one runner on. The results were dramatic. The average length of a nine-inning game with a pitch clock, has been two hours and 38 minutes in minor league baseball. That's down from three hours and four minutes. And now Daniel Bard, who's a reliever for the Colorado Rockies, believes a pitch clock makes it too difficult for a pitcher to hold a runner on base. Gee, you think? Of course it does. So um, I do like the lack, the, the change in defensive shifts. I do like that. But I think this pitch clock is absurd. I think this... Pickoff cap is r- absurd. You're welcome to comment if you like. 800-848-9222. Alex Barnard is here. Yeah, I mean, the whole point to me is like, if you think the game is too long, don't watch it. You know, I, well, people aren't. That's the problem. Well, yeah, they're, but they're you know what? I mean, out, frankly, there are longer there are longer games of anything. I mean, golf a golf game is at least four hours, and if you're watching something like the PGA, there's multiple players that you're watching. You know, that's at least a whole day. Why is it? Why does it have to be that people are complaining about the length of the game? I feel like they're. I mean, I don't know about any more changes to the rules that could be made to make the experience more enjoyable for viewers. But I think changing the length of the game is by far one of the least important things you could do to change up 
baseball. I would agree with you. And if um, and b- having the designated hitter in universal in both leagues, that doesn't shorten the game because it, you you take away that out that would usually come up with the pitcher. Theo Epstein, who was a longtime uh, baseball executive with the Cubs and with the uh, Red Sox, now he's a consultant for Major League Baseball, and he was a member of this joint competition committee. I can't believe I'm talking about a joint competition committee. I just in my life, I never thought I would see the day. Um, we're now at the point where Major League Baseball has more, more bureaucracy than Washington does. Well, close. So Epstein said, the game on the field has been evolving for decades in a way that has taken us away from action, away from contact, away from a faster pace. And this is no fault of the players whatsoever. In fact, Most of these trends have been driven simply by modernization, by data, and by front office organizations. But the game has evolved in a way that nobody would have chosen if we were sitting down 25 years ago to chart a path towards the best version of baseball. I don't know. Again, you know I'm a Star Trek fan, right? So everything in my life eventually comes down to Star Trek, right? The last line... In the episode Space Seed, season one, brilliant episode, one of my favorite episodes with Ricardo Montalban. And I'm, uh, if you haven't seen the episode, I'm not going to tell you what happens. Although, if you've seen Star Trek 2, you know what happens. But the last line, Leonard Nimoy playing Mr. Spock says, it would be interesting to return here a hundred years from now and see what develops, what grows or develops from the seed we've planted here today. I think the same thing of baseball. I hope I'm around in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, and I would love to see what this seed that Rob Manford, and it's not a sunflower seed, what this sunflower seed that Rob Manford is planting causes to sprout in the world of baseball. 800-848-9222. You want to comment on anything we've covered, you're certainly welcome to do so. Ed is in Massapequa. Hello, Ed. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, first of all, talking about Star Trek real quick. What does Spock say to his friends as a greeting and like a, and a goodbye passage? What is the verbatim that he says to them? Is this a joke or a trivia question? I just heard, yeah, it's a trivia. What, what is it? Well, he, live long and prosper. Yeah, you got it. All right. That was too easy. Okay. But, right. uh, you know what? I, I, I want to tell you about the, um, the mess, messing with baseball. You know what? It's it's all because of um. It's all corporate, and it's not in the interest of fans. And I don't know who know who did that search about saying that the game is too long. It's it, so they can put more commercials on during the game. That stupid pitch count. All right, and don't even get me started like the infield fly rule and all these other that. So that's older, but don't even get me started with the changes and the getting the bag bigger and all that. But that. That right now, the, 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 that pit, that 15, 16 seconds on the clock, forget it. That's so they can put more commercials on during the game. It's it's not in the interest of fans. It's all for the um, it's all for the um, who are sponsoring the sports like TV or radio, so they can put more commercials on the tube or the the telly. You know, uh, indeed, it. Ed. Thank you very much. You know, I, I am. Um, you know, it's interesting. An interesting theory. An interesting theory. You know who I think is going to be on this show Wednesday? I'm still waiting to confirm it. But uh, I think Ralph Nader is going to be on the show Wednesday morning. And one of the things that Ralph, they talked about uh, maybe about 10 years ago, 
putting advertisements on the bases itself. Ralph Nader mobilized fan opposition to this, and they 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 stopped it. They stifled it. And I, I am curious what Ralph thinks of these new rules. If he does come on this show on Wednesday, I'm going to ask him about this. 800-848-9222. Igor is in New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Great. Greetings, Frank. You know, there are already advertisements when you're watching TV on the back of the mound. So having them on the bases or it wouldn't seemingly make much difference. But what I wanted to say about the rule changes were I'm with you on the majority of what you've said. But, you know, they're really changing these rules for a different generation of fans. I'm 55 years old. I have a son who's 12. Kids like him that are playing fast computer games think baseball is generally a slow-developing sport, mm. and I think they're looking to quicken it up and make turn it into something that it isn't, which is a fast sport. It's the only sport without a clock, and I think they're trying to make it go quicker. Yeah, well, that's exactly what they're trying to do. I mean, uh, there's yeah. no bones about that, Igor. Igor, thanks for the call and your perspective. Um, that's exactly what they're trying to do, and I don't think that's for the best. But it is days like this uh, that uh, I feel an awful lot like Groucho Marx, and whenever they propose all these changes, whatever it is, I end up being against it. Well, I thought my razor was dull until I heard his speech. And that reminds me of a story that's so dirty I'm ashamed to think of it myself. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good, but let's have one thing understood. Whatever it is, I'm against it. And even when you've changed it or condensed it, I'm against it. I'm opposed to it. On general principles, I'm opposed to it. He's opposed to it. Before my son was born, I used to yell from night till morn, whatever it is, I'm against it. And I've kept yelling since I first commenced it. I'm against it. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Some nights I stay up, casting in my bathwork. Some nights I call it a draw. Some nights I wish that my lips could build a castle. Some nights I wish they'd just fall off. But I still wake up, I still see a ghost. Oh Lord, I'm still not sure what I stand for. This is uh, Some Nights by Fun. A great song. Very catchy, I must say. If you ever want to know what music we uh, play on the show, then uh, you should absolutely join our 
Facebook group. All you have to do is search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Be warned, though, uh, Matt Blaze is now an administrator of that Facebook group. Made him an administrator last weekend. Uh, I am already regretting this decision. You know, I, I turn off everything on Saturday, as you know, until 10 p.m. or so. And I, I log on to my computer or my phone as uh, my wife's driving back from Long Island on Saturday. And I'm looking in the Facebook group. And there's all these weird co- these weird articles and posts from Barb Pace, who's one of the Facebook users. And Barb Pace tries to post seven, eight articles a day that have nothing to do with the show. I, I think what goes on with Barb Pace is that, you know, she just has these articles that she wants to – um, share most of them are her bashing Democrats or Democratic politicians, and then it's an article, and then it's her comment on why we're all screwed because X Y Z Democratic politician is is in office. But there's not; it's never anything that we've talked about, or it's rarely anything we've talked about. Now I've said time and again, please only post stuff that's relevant to the show. And I'm thinking, how in the world did this stuff get posted? And then um, she posts some article about something Governor Hochul was doing. And one of the Facebook users says exactly what I was thinking. You know, okay, that's bad. But what does this have to do with the show? And somebody comments back at this guy and says, hey, it got approved. They let it through. Let her Leave her alone. And I'm thinking, how in the world did this get through? And then I remember, slowly I turn. Ah, yes, the Matt Blaze maneuver. He must be getting, you know, they call it payola in radio. I think in Facebook, it's Facebookola. He must be getting a little something on the side from uh, Barb Pace, be it remuneration or, I don't know, something else, for him to be greenlighting these Barb Pace Facebook comments. But we reined him in. We had a, uh, we had a come-to-Jesus moment uh, over the weekend, where hopefully we can curtail some of this Barb Pace Facebook post and proliferation. Just think I declined a lot of them. Well, I, I know. <laughs> just think I, that. That is amazing. <laughs> it is amazing. So we do encourage you to join the Facebook group. You can not only participate in conversations about the show, but you can know what music we're playing. By the way, uh, you can also like my Facebook page. And you don't have to be a fan to like the Facebook page because you just never know what people are going to say. For instance, right now, uh, there's a comment uh, from one of our listeners who today is using the name uh, Kathy Schuyler or something, but that's not her real name. I don't even think it's a her. It's, it's, this guy has like three or four other pseudonyms. But this person with no profile picture, that's always a pretty good indication that it's a fake person. But this person writes, Frank, you could give me and perhaps many listeners, an act of kindness by not screaming whenever you say the word but and shouting a caller's name if they don't respond in three seconds. You have carried on this annoying behavior for as long as you have been broadcasting. And it's just the letter U, not the word you spelled out. And I said, Kathy, I think you'd be a lot happier not listening. Her response or his response, I would be happier if you were mature enough to change your ways. Well... Kathy, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. Am I right? That's uh, right, Frank. So you're not so smart. <laughs> uh, 
if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. And uh, how does the rest go? Right? It's the, that, that proverb. If turnips were watches, I'd wear one by my side. If ifs and ends were pots and pans, there'd be no work for tinker's hands. 800-848-9222. Those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, we'll try and get to you after the top of the hour. A lot of stuff to get to. That's one of the reasons we had no guests today. We had people that wanted to come on, but there's just too many things that I had to share with you. Some fun stories, some not-so-fun stories. You know what's coming up in a mere 40 seconds? You guessed it. Commendations. Commendations. You want to know who deserves a pat on the back this week? Listen, coming up in mere moments. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, commendable or not, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight it's monday it would not be monday without us uh, giving a pat on the back to those that deserved a pat on the back that's right it is time for us to give praise to the commendable the persons places or things that have done something that is laudatory and this week that list includes the following the other side of midnight presents Well, obviously, uh, this weekend, when we reflect back on what happened 21 years ago, it's no surprise that first and foremost on my list are the first responders that uh, that served on September 11th. Both those that died that we honor each year, including my friend, uh, firefighter Jeff Giordano, uh, both those that survived and that are still with us and uh, have a lot of memories that uh, I'm sure haunt them to this very day. People like my friend, a former FDNY Commissioner Sal Cassano, and uh, people that died in the ensuing two decades from 9-11-related illnesses. So uh, we think about all of them, and we give a commendation to all of the September 11th first responders. I also want to give another posthumous commendation to somebody that passed away yesterday on Staten Island. And the first person to tell me about this was was John Katsimatidis. And uh, Anthony Varvaro grew up on the north shore of Staten Island in Westerly. He retired from Major League Baseball as a pitcher. Played six seasons in the majors. Teams like the Braves and uh, the Red Sox. And then he decided to retire... And become a Port Authority police officer. And yesterday, he was driving um, to the World Trade Center Command for the World Trade Center Memorial when he was killed in a car crash near the Holland Tunnel. This young man, who always wanted to be a police officer 
and was the perfect example of the drive and determination necessary to be both a Major League Baseball player and a police officer, died. He joined the academy um, the, end of the, the, the very next day after he died. He was a standout student at St. John's University, and uh, he has now passed away, and uh, this is just so sad. Not only has the Port Authority put out a statement, but so have uh, his former Major League Baseball teams, um, including the Atlanta Braves, saying our thoughts and prayers are with the Vervaro family and uh, his colleagues. And uh, this is just terrible, terrible. But a posthumous commendation to Anthony Vervaro, and I will join the Port Authority and the Atlanta Braves in wishing him well. want to give a commendation as well to... Angela Gardias. Angela Gardias is who they call her Dona Angela, is a 71-year-old grandmother living in rural Mexico who has all of a sudden very quietly become a viral YouTube hit by sharing homestyle Mexican recipes. This 71-year-old grandmother living in this small Mexican town that I don't even think I can pronounce has surpassed the viewership of culinary icons Gordon Ramsay and Martha Stewart on YouTube. Her channel, De Mi Rancho a Tu Cochina, which is Spanish for From My Ranch to Your Kitchen, has over 4 million subscribers. And her videos get more views than both Gordon Ramsay and Martha Stewart. And this is really impressive. Within two months of the publication of her first video, she had over 100,000 subscribers. No big production team, no fancy demonstration kitchen, no bevy of assistance behind the scenes. This woman, again, the woman's in her 70s. Her kids film her on their cell phones as she cooks in front of a large, flat stove. And she, Dona Angela highlights traditional processes in Mexican cooking. She speaks with a distinctive regional accent, and she's watched by Mexicans around the world hankering for a nostalgic taste of home. Love that story. Giving her, proud to give her accommodation. I want to give a commendation as well to protein and iron. Now, we've known for a long time that protein and iron are both good for you. What we have not known is that uh, eating a diet rich in protein and iron while avoiding shampoos that contain potentially damaging chemicals can help men avoid hair loss. Dr. Susan Masick. A dermatologist at Ohio State University in Columbus urged men to act as soon as their hairline started to recede by switching to eating more foods like eggs, beef, chickpeas, pumpkin seeds, and black beans. She said the extra protein would help hair follicles grow, while the added iron would boost the amount of oxygen red blood cells can carry to cells. The dermatologist also threw her weight behind the readily available 57-cent-a-day medicine minoxidil, which can be given as a low-dose pill to help slow or even reverse hair loss. Other experts have warned against using shampoos that contain sulfites. So there you have it. 
So if you want to avoid hair loss, protein, iron, commendation for you both. I want to commend the a police captain in Alvin, Texas, by the name of Todd Arendel. <laughs> Josh Walters and his wife said they decided to enjoy a nice evening together by ordering some food and watching a movie. So they ordered DoorDash. Only one problem. Their DoorDash driver was arrested. And Captain Arundel. <laughs> I almost can't believe this happened, but I'm glad that it did. Captain Arundel arrested their DoorDash driver. Listen to what he did. He took the delivery that the DoorDash driver was going to be made, making, and he made it. The cops made the DoorDash delivery driver's delivery complete. So, Josh Walters opens the door, and the officer says, Good evening. Did you order DoorDash? Well, your DoorDash driver's going to jail, but I wanted to get you your food. A typical humble public servant, Captain Arundel, downplayed the interaction, saying it wasn't a big deal, and the officer was just doing his job. Meanwhile, Walter's order still shows the driver should be arriving soon, but apparently we know that will not be the case. So there you have it. Uh, That was a nice story, and I love hearing that. I'm not clear on what the driver was going to jail for. I don't know if it was drugs or something else, but... Uh, at least they still got their food. I want to commend Pedro Hernandez, a man who raced to the rescue of people who were ejected into the water after their boat crashed north of Key Largo, Florida. Um, Pedro Fernandez was heading to the Florida Keys for dinner on Sunday night when he saw a 29-foot vessel involved in a crash. So he drove closer to lend a helping hand. And first, they recovered two ladies. One had their forehead open. Pretty bad injury. And then Fernandez said one of the teens who was ejected from the boat was discovered submerged about 15 minutes before she was pulled from the water. So, according to Fernandez, we boarded the girl and started doing some CPR, talking to 911. She caught a lot of water. For me, she was doing good, but she was unconscious. Cell phone video recorded by Fernandez captures the moment that a Miami-Dade fire rescue helicopter arrived at the scene to pull other victims from the water. Pictures taken at the scene show the wreckage of the boat upside down. Um, This is incredible. This guy jumped right into action and did whatever he could to help rescue the victims of this capsized boat. I want to give a commendation as well to a state where we have a lot of listeners and I happen to have a lot of cousins. This Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, according to new statistics as published from the National Center for Employment Wage Statistics and the Bureau of Labor Statistics, finds that Pennsylvania is the number one state for teacher salaries. Oh, yes. Schools and their staff are top of mind as the school year gets underway. A lot of people starting school this week. 
Most people started last week, I believe. And teacher pay is at the top of mind for a lot of us. And I'm a big fan of uh, teachers of all stripes, but especially public school teachers. And if you want to get paid well as a school teacher, Pennsylvania is the state for you. I want to also commend Manuka Honey. Manuka Honey could actually help clear deadly drug-resistant lung infections. This is incredible. And now there's a potential new treatment that combines natural Manuka honey with a widely used drug. It's been developed by scientists at Aston University to treat this potentially lethal lung lung infection, and it greatly reduces side effects of one of the current drugs used for its treatment. So these uh, findings have been published in the Journal of Microbiology. And they show that the scientists in the mycobacterial research group in the College of Health and Life Scientists, excuse me, Health and Life Sciences, were able to combine Manuka honey and the drug amicacin or amicacin in a lab-based formulation to treat the harmful bacterial lung infection, Mycobacterium abscessus. Manuka honey is long known to have wide-ranging medicinal properties. But more recently, it's been identified for its broad-spectrum antimicrobial activity. I don't know about you. I don't plan on getting this lung infection, but I do plan on trying to up my consumption of Manuka honey. I want to commend Tamara Panzino, a nurse who is being applauded for her quick thinking after saving the life of a newborn baby on board a flight to Orlando. So um, this is incredible. A three-month-old by the name of Anjali stopped breathing and her lips went purple during a Spirit Airlines flight. And this baby, this three-month-old baby, was seated three months, uh, excuse me, three rows behind this nurse. And all of a sudden, this nurse finds that there's an emergency, immediately springs into action. The flight attendants, you know, ask if anybody has medical training. And Tamara jumps in to help her. And she saved this three-month-old baby girl. And thankfully, the baby was okay. We don't know why the infant... Stop breathing, but the fact that uh, Tamara was there to perform CPR is a miracle. Miracle. I want to commend a gentleman by the name of Clitfod St. Jean, a Boston man who is being hailed as a hero for helping a family escape a burning building over Labor Day weekend. Um, Clitfod St. Jean, as identified by the Boston Globe, leapt into action early Saturday morning after realizing his next-door neighbor's home on Delford Street in Roslindale was on fire. The Boston Fire Department said in a statement that a mother and her two kids were trapped by the heavy blaze while on the second floor of the building. Noticing this, this good Samaritan retrieved an old mattress he had placed against a nearby fence and used it to help them reach safety. 
So this is a tremendous amount of quick thinking to realize there was a mattress. Very heroic. Neighbors helping neighbors. I love this. Love this. Initially, the family was hesitant to jump from the second story, but their neighbor was ultimately able to change their minds. He said, come on, come on, the fire's coming too close. And the mother then dropped her five-year-old to the man before she and her other child jumped onto the mattress that he placed under the pillow. In total, nine residents, five adults, and four children were displaced by the fire. The cause of the fire remains under investigation. And finally... I want to give a commendation to some kids in Monmouth Beach. And I have friends in Monmouth Beach, and it's a great community. I love Monmouth Beach. And um, these kids in Monmouth Beach, really a couple of kindergartners at the Monmouth Beach Farmer's Market, started a lemonade stand Memorial Day weekend of 2017. Well, six summers later, that lemonade stand has collected a grand total of $20,000 for Fulfill, the Neptune, New Jersey-based food bank that serves residents of Monmouth and Ocean counties. Ellen Marowitz, whose twin daughters, Addie and Marnie, were there at the inception of this uh, lemonade stand, said they have no plans to end it. Dubbed Kids Quench Hunger, the lemonade stand just wrapped up its sixth summer as a weekend staple at the farmer's market. They estimate that 25 of Addie and Marty's classmates in Monmouth Beach Elementary School have chipped in over the years, led by a core group of 10 who've been involved the entire time. I think this is wonderful. I think it teaches children that um, it's important to give something back. Uh, as it, to Going back to our previous hour's theme, Ellen Marowitz says, this teaches them that it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, If you have something to give, you can change a person's life with the smallest gesture. So Kids Quench Hunger asks for a dollar donation per cup of lemonade, but they get $10 donations, $20 donations. They've even had people give $100. Must have been John and Freehold when he was visiting Monmouth Beach, right? So that is this week's list of commendations. If you would care to comment on anybody I have commended, you are certainly welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We have one, two, three, four open lines. This is The Other Side of Midnight, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano. As you squander through your life, bigger cars, bigger houses, term insurance for your wife. Tuesday evenings with your harlot, and on Wednesdays it's your charlatan analyst. He's high up on your list. You've got air-conditioned sinuses and dark, disturbing doubt about religion. And you keep those cards and letters going out. While your secretary is tempting you, your morals are exempting you from guilt and shame. Heaven knows you're not to blame. You better take care of business, Mr. Businessman. What's your plan? Get down to business, Mr. Businessman. If you can't before, it's too late and you throw your life away. 
Mr. Businessman, a fine song if ever there was one. Well, it's finally happened. Uh, My wife and I, yesterday, we concluded season two of Only Murders in the Building. What a ride this has been. If you haven't been following my commentary on it, um, this is a show that came out about a year ago, but we didn't start watching it until about uh, two or three weeks ago. And I have to tell you, I don't watch a lot of TV shows. This was the only one that we were watching. This show is phenomenal. It stars Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. I've always been a Steve Martin fan and a Martin Short fan. And uh, Selena Gomez, I am now a fan of hers, in part because of this pick of a show and in part because of a Woody Allen picture she was in. They're all, first of all, the three of them are so great. The chemistry that they have is incredible. What I love also about this show is everything. I love the pacing. I love the direction. I love the way they tell the story. I love the way it's edited. I love the way that it really is a mystery show. And it holds your interest, and it's unpredictable, and yet it's also hysterical. It's very funny. And so many of the characters on this show are people that you can relate to. And so many of the other characters are people that are caricatures are out of a cartoon, but they're still believable enough to think that they really exist. It's a very clever show. And I have to tell you season two, I forget who it was that told me, but someone told me that season two was not going to be as good as season one. I disagree. I think season two was excellent. I think it was on par with season one. And I'll tell you who I was really impressed with in season two. Michael Rappaport. Michael Rappaport, the actor, who is almost kind of the same character in every role that he's ever played, which is Michael Rappaport. And um, he's been a guest on uh, with Sid Rosenberg on their show. And I think he's friends with Sid or something, but... Uh, He's a regular on the Howard Stern show as well. At least he was. And in one episode, this doesn't give anything away, but in one episode, he basically tells somebody that he's interrogating. He's a cop. He says, "Ah, I don't listen to podcasts. I listen to Howard Stern. And meanwhile, he's on the Howard Stern show. That's why it's funny. But then he goes and says, "Eh, I don't like this new stuff that he does. I listen to old Stern. And it was kind of an inside joke for people that, A, listen to Howard Stern and know that Michael Rappaport goes on the show. But I think this is actually the best job that Michael Rappaport has done since Copland, since the film Copland. He's done a lot of things that I've liked, but I loved Copland, and I think this is his best role since Copland. So I'm not going to give away anything in the um, story, because you should see it from the beginning, from season one, if you haven't. But um, basically there's these three people. Two older guys, Martin Short and Steve Martin, and one younger woman, played by Selena Gomez. And they find themselves as suspects in a murder. So they end up going, even though they're suspects in a murder, they end up going to the memorial of the person they're suspected of killing. 
This is a scene from season two of Only Murders in the Building where the three of them show up with podcasting equipment in hand because they host a podcast and they uh, they show up to the memorial, the person they're suspected of murdering. Oh, goody. The murderers are here. What the hell are you doing? We brought dip. Oh, my, be nice. I invited them. We came to pay our respects. With a screw top? What happened? You couldn't find a box? We want to help find Bunny's killer. Her death was tragic and one of the worst days of my life. And that's actually saying something. Right, because it's all about you. Millennials, get a job. And there's a lot of generational humor. There's a lot of New York humor. It's 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 terrific. I um, have not been disappointed in the least. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far. Let me say hello to Josh in Elmont. Hello, Josh. All right, Josh. Thank you. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Yeah, hi, hi. Hi, hi. Good morning. Uh, Good when morning. I originally called, I was going to speak on one particular topic. Uh, since then, I have seven other topics that I want to speak about. But something tells me you won't give me 45 minutes of your time. So I'll only speak about um, some charity, some uh, kindnesses that, that I personally do. Uh, for example, and I think they're a good example. Anybody can do it. Uh, towards the end of July, one particular uh, 97 degree day was hot, hazy, humid. I was enjoying driving the car and I bought myself a cold drink of water. Then I thought, why don't I spread the joy? So I bought 12 bottles of Dollar each and I went around driving out some extra time. Mm-hmm. And I saw some people, you know, picking up the garbage or just working in the streets. And it didn't take long to get rid of the 12 bottles. And the appreciation by all of them, they asked, why are you giving me this? I said, I don't want you to get dehydrated. You know, it was very hot. And the appreciation was obvious to me, very obvious. I did it for several days. But then there was also... That's great. That's um, a perfect example. I love that. Yeah. It, 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 it was hot, like hell. I mean, in July and August, I think we must have had 35 days with, with hot, hazy humid in the upper 90s. At least it felt that way to me. Oh, yeah. But then there is, let's say, sometimes... I always have like 10 or 12 single dollars available if I, if I need to help someone. And I, I was at a gas station, and I saw this, uh, this is about seven years ago, an uh, interesting story. And I saw this Asian gentleman, nicely dressed, going from, you know, at the gas station, you have garbages at each pump. And he was collecting uh, bottles that he can make five or ten cents on each one. So I felt bad for him, and I, I went over to him, and I just gave him four, I think it was four singles, three or four singles. And there was a black woman very close by and she wanted to say something with my eyes I showed later. By the way, the Asian gentleman when I gave him the I think it was four dollars, his eyes spoke volumes, appreciation or, or why are you doing this? I, I it's hard to explain. Anyway, so th- then when the guy left, uh the, the, the very well dressed black woman, she it was a Sunday morning. She was obviously gonna go to church soon. And she asked me, Did you give the guy money? I said, Yes. She says, why? Do you know him? I said, no. Are you rich? I said, look at my car. Actually, <laughs> I was driving a 1998 or 2015, but it only had 19,000 miles on it. That's neither here nor there. So she says to me, so why did you give money? I said, look, I figured he could use it more than me. So being that I wear a yarmulke, she knew I was Jewish. She, she said to me, that's why God chose the Jewish people. 
So I said, told her a joke because I figured she knows about the persecution in the last 2,000 years of the Jewish people. I, I, I'm sure she knew it. So I told her the joke when Mr. Goldberg dies, he goes up to heaven, he asks God, God, is it true that we Jews are the chosen people? And God says, yes, that is true. And Mr. Goldberg says, do us a favor, choose somebody else for a change. <laughs> you know? Anyways, um, so a, a third thing that I do is there's many uh, grocery stores in my neighborhood that they let very poor people, uh, there's a tab, I think there's the word tab, you know, on, on account. And I knew this one man, very impoverished, he lost his job, and he was behind probably $1,200, something like that. And he was petrified to let another, to buy $70 of food that he needs for his wife and children, that maybe they won't let him anymore. So what I do is without him knowing, I would, I'm not a rich guy, but I would give 10 or $20 towards that account. Oh, and that's the nice. Form of charity, I'm sorry? That's very nice. Yeah, I, I, the biggest form of charity, according to the Rambam, which is Maimonides, is when the giver doesn't know whom he's giving to. In this case, I did know who I'm giving to. But the receiver of the charity doesn't know who's giving to him. That's like the top four. But anyway. Well, no, I, I'm so, sure that but, I'm not going to contradict Maimonides, and I'm sure that's accurate. But um, according to the 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 two psychological studies that I just read, it really does a world of psychological good for people if they know who the benefactor of their small act of kindness is. Not necessarily charity, but a small yeah, act of that's kindness. That's true. It's 100% true. As a matter of fact, some philosopher, I can't remember the name, considered doing kindnesses to others enlightened selfishness. Enlightened mm. selfishness. Meaning, basically, it's, it's something like it says in Scripture, I don't know if it's in the Talmud or in, or in Tehillim, which is Psalms, I think, throw bread upon the waters and it will come back to you as cake, something like that. In other words, you get back more than you're even giving, and it makes you feel good when you're giving to people. It's really enlightened selfishness. I thought that was well, a beautiful and, way. And again, Charles, and I'm, I'm glad that you said that, but uh, again, I want to reiterate the two studies that we've cited, and I've linked to one of them on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Fan, the two studies that we've cited show that not only does it make you – that what you said is not necessarily accurate. I mean, doing a grand gesture for someone, giving a lot of money, giving an organ, that certainly will make you feel good. But what these studies show, and this is the reason I wanted to emphasize this and do this exercise, what these studies show is that even if you do something tiny – For someone, the person that's benefiting from that feels much better about that than the person that gives it. Meaning if you give someone a free cup of coffee or a ride somewhere, that does them a whole lot of good. And the study shows that you underestimate the value of that. Read this. It's really so interesting. And the Times did an article about it. I think Axios did an article about it. And I've linked to the study itself on my Facebook page so you can read it. Um, I found it so interesting. And it's something that I don't think a lot of people are aware of or have an appreciation for. So I think a lot of people would like to help people get this feeling, but um, they may not know how. But I think you gave a couple of pretty good examples as to how that can be. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Two, two. Let me say hello to uh, Jeff in Hell's Kitchen, who's been holding a while. Hello, Jeff. Am I on deck here? You're on, on live, Jeff. Go ahead. Be heard. 
Right, I was wanting to talk about 911. Um, it's a terrible, one of the most terrible things to ever happen to humanity. Uh, I guess I won't be on that list. Uh, I think the ceremony should should change a little bit over the years. Um, maybe later in the day. And uh, well, why later in the day rather than the time that it happened? Uh, I don't know. It just, uh, it seems that it's, uh, it's, uh, just too early for it. Uh, I, I also think that, uh, the, uh, it could be merged with, uh, Labor Day and Memorial Day, that it would be, uh, uh, civic holiday to say a Friday weekend type thing and, um, well, yeah, thank you, Jeff. Um, as far as your suggested changes, I think you're in luck because Rob Manford, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, is appointing a committee to explore how the September 11th commemorations should be changed. So that's number one. Number two, I don't think that's a good idea of combining September 11th with Memorial Day and Labor Day for a day of civic participation. I'm all for civic participation and also for occasions that celebrate civic awareness, but I really think each of those three holidays that you just mentioned should be commemorated on their own uh, for what it is. And I don't think the September 11th should be folded in to one of these other holidays because, look, a lot of Labor Day has come down to barbecues. A lot of Memorial Day has come down to discounts and mattress sales and things of that nature. I think it's – you're already – with this restaurant that we cited in Virginia, you're already seeing that happen a little bit with September 11th or uh, Patriot Day, as as some people call it. And I don't think that's the I don't think that's the right way to remember the holiday. But that's my opinion. Maybe this Rob Manford committee will come up with a different view. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Oh yeah, this is Joe Frank. Uh, Joe. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That you know, you brought up Copland, and I was thinking of a of a somewhat related movie, Bad Lieutenant, with Nicolas Cage. Did you ever see that one? Sure. Yeah, it's uh, that's Harvey Keitel, Bad Lieutenant. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's an interesting uh, type of movie in that no, there was nobody with like uh, on the side of good. Basically, it was just like. You know, it was just like the next level of depravity. People were just, uh, you know, uh, kind of like one-upping themselves on uh, what degree they were crazy. You know, I find that an interesting type movie in that chat. Oh, so, yeah, sorry. Uh, we lost you there, Joe. Uh, but, you know, so be it. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Luke is in Middletown. Hello, Luke. Hi, uh, Frank. Um, yeah, just a, a je- good uh, gesture was um, I have some family members in uh, Crossville, Tennessee, and I ran into some friends over the weekend up here in uh, Middletown, New York, that are senior, and um going to um, reach out to my family to uh, say hello to them across town down there in Tennessee and um, just uh, be there for a helping hand for some senior friends that I have met. Okay. 
All right. Well, that's so nice, Luke. That was kind of a good deed. That, sure. Uh, no, absolutely. Well, look, might go pretty far. One of the two uh, studies that I cited on the and when we did this segment last hour was just letting people know what you that you're thinking of them, which does count for a lot. By the way, you know Joe from Queens, or as Kenneth likes to call him, Jeff. He mentioned Bad Lieutenant, which is a picture that I've seen. And it's funny, he mentioned it as being a Nicolas Cage film. And I said, oh, yeah, that's with Harvey Keitel. We were actually talking about two different films because I, I just looked this up. I was saying, I don't remember Nicolas Cage being in Bad Lieutenant. And sure enough, there was the Bad Lieutenant of 1992, which took place here in New York with Harvey Keitel, the Abel Ferrara picture. And then there was the Bad Lieutenant Port of Call, New Orleans, from 2009. That picture has Nicolas Cage in it. So I didn't, I didn't see that one. I didn't see the Nicolas Cage version. I only saw the Harvey Keitel version from 30 years ago. But uh, I, I, it sounds like there were some similar themes. So I have to, I have to check that out. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything we are talking about from only murders in the building to this NASA attempt to battle back asteroids to the baseball changes to the beginning of football season to Kathy Schuyler going on a, a rampage on my Facebook page. She's now, he is, it's a he, but he's, she's, he's masquerading as a she, which is very trendy now. Not only criticizing my... Um, volume that I speak at, but also now my abilities as a parent. So there you have it. There's a oh, no shortage of really amped up listeners commenting on Facebook. Uh, it's facebook.com slash Moranofan. And if you want to read that study that I've been talking about that shows that the giver of good deeds often underestimates the value of those small acts of kindness. We're talking super small here. You could read that on, on there as well, facebook.com slash Morano fan. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Every time that I look at you 
throwing it all away. Oh, yes. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we are talking about, that's 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Um, and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash fan. I shared a couple of the photos from the um, 100th anniversary gala, which was also John Katzmatidi's birthday party. I shared that on uh, Facebook on Friday. So if you want to see some of those pictures, including a tuxedoed Frank Morano, you can do so at uh, Facebook.com slash fan. Um, all right. A lot to get to. A couple of people have been patiently holding let me try and get to as many of them as possible. John in Brooklyn's been holding a while. John, hello. Hi. Um, uh, I, I'll have a, I have a couple of things to say, but to start off with 9-11, I knew a young woman who had graduated from my undergraduate alma mater years ago, and we had both been members of the College Alumni Club here in New York City. That morning on September 11th, her father flew one of, was on one of the planes that hit the World Trade Center. Hmm. Wow. I know, and uh, I still think about her every 9/11. I don't think we should change any everything, but this was the first year I did not listen to any of the names being read, and um, I'm certain that her father's was read. Uh, As for Simple acts of kindness. If I'm on the subway and I'm, I have to need to ride an elevator to go, let's say, from the platform to the mezzanine, and there's a lot of people waiting there, what I will do is usually I'll be the last one to leave. I'll keep the door open, and I'll tell people I'm holding the doors open for you. You go ahead and leave, especially people with carriages. Hmm. Well, no, that's very, very, I think that's a very thoughtful thing that you can do, that everybody can do. I know, and I'm surprised more people don't do that. And, you know, I, I, I think it's just my obligation as a person to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm i not expecting a, 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 any kindness or anything, although people, they're, 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 they're usually surprised when I say that. And, of course, they'll thank me. Um, as they leave, but yeah, it, it, it's something commonsensical, I think. And just quickly, uh, I think baseball is ridiculous. There should be no more rule change. I agree with you. There should not have been the DL. Uh, I mean, the DH instituted for the National League this year, and I don't know what that committee is doing for next season. I'm dreading to think about it. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, th- thank you, John. You know, one of the positive changes about baseball next year, and it's not, it didn't come out of this committee, it was announced prior to that, is that next year, I, for the first time in the history of baseball, next year every team is going to play every team. So that it's kind of fun for the fans. Uh, we've never seen that before, where you would see every team in baseball, AL and NL. Now, on the one hand, it's exciting. Because, you know, if you've never seen, say, Wrigley Field or, you know, uh, Fenway Park or Camden Yards, it's kind of cool that you'll now get to see, at least on television, these these ballparks and some of the players on all these teams. But on the other hand, I feel like it does dilute, especially with this designated hitter rule that John just alluded to, 
it does dilute further the differences that were existing between the two leagues, the American League and the National League. There used to be very distinct differences in the kind of quality of play, in the style of play. Um, Now we're seeing those differences erode. I mean, basically we're seeing the American League and the National League go from two leagues that had very distinct characteristics to instead basically two glorified divisions. Am I right? All right, 800-848-9222. Patrick is in Georgia. Hello, Patrick. Morning, Frank. Always nice to talk to you. Thank you. Likewise. Um, yes, the potential of a planet-busting asteroid, mm-hmm. kind of a bleak thing. Uh, but you know what? I would prefer a planet-busting asteroid than live under totalitarian governance. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would prefer neither, Patrick, but thank you. That's uh, well said. All right, uh, so... I had told you, and I'm updating you on this because I had uh, let you into my personal life, so I feel like I owe you an update on this. I had told you about my Uncle Steve, who is my godfather, my mother's brother, and a great guy, wonderful guy, who's been through a great deal of uh, hardship and tragedy in his life on a professional level and a lot of other ways. I I won't even go through them. But I mentioned how about a month ago he met this woman on the Internet, not much younger. I mean, I think he's 60. She's 49. She is a a widow, four children. And um, he decides the first day that he met her, which was, I want to reiterate, a month ago, that he's going to marry this girl. Okay, amped up, telling everybody, can't do enough for her in terms of buying gifts and is telling the whole world. And so a lot of uh, a lot of people in his social group and a lot of friends think, you know, he's taking this a little fast. And I am, you know, I'm happy for him that he's happy, but I'm somebody that has been in the maybe you're taking it a little fast category. Maybe pump the brakes slightly. Well, over the weekend, my uncle Steve posted the following video to Facebook. Well, here we are in Staten Island with me and my beautiful girlfriend, my future wife-to-be, Pam. Anyway, I told her this is a spot when we were kids. We used to find uh, old bottles and things over here. And I just wanted to do some quick looking around because this was a spot where I always found old bottles. So anyway, I'm just going to take a quick look over here. Uh, Anyway, I'm going to just sift around a little. Oh, 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 here we go. Here we go. Look, look what I tell you. Look, look. I told you, this is, uh, well, when I was a kid, I used to find all these old bottles here and some had money in them. Really? Yeah. Pull the cork. Pull the cork and, and see what, uh, see what's in it. It says. What does it say, honey? Oh, my goodness. What does it say? E- what does it say? Tell oh me what it goodness. says. Wait a minute. Tell me. Tell me what it says. Tell me what it says. 
tell me what it says. Tell me what it says. What does that mean? Uh, you will marry me. <laughs> yeah, just took a flop down the hill. Oh my goodness. As I'm asking my future wife to marry me. Wow. Well, hey. will you? Yes. Okay. Oh, wow, look, so nice. Wait a minute. Look, 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 look. So that's that. So my Uncle Steve, who I've been updating you about, he is now officially engaged. I don't think they have set a date for the uh, wedding. But uh, my uncle said he's not. he doesn't want to do a, a big thing with all sorts of people. But I, uh, you know, so we'll see what happens. But uh, I don't know if they're going to get married right away. I would assume at the rate that their relationship is progressing that it probably will be sooner rather than later. But because I had told you about it, I wanted to... I wanted to uh, give you an update on that. But I, uh, you know, obviously, I, I, it's always a little concerning whenever you m- uh, jump into a relationship with anybody, let alone a marriage. But uh, I'm certainly happy for him, uh, happy for both of them. But obviously, I love him and I'm wishing him and both of them the best. And hopefully, uh, things uh, turn out uh, for the best for both of them. But, you know, he seems very, very happy. Look, it, it, you put it in a, on a textbook and it does not make necessarily a lot of sense. But sometimes uh, love doesn't. So that's um, congratulations to both my Uncle Steve and his new fiance Pam. By the way, I got an SMS text message here. And you could send me an SMS text message as well at 8168Morano. That's 8168-M-O-R-A-N-L, who said, uh, this is, and this is well said, giving someone a compliment can go a long way. My wife's face lights up and her day is made when a stranger compliments her on her dress or nails. Isn't that interesting? Some, a stranger's compliment means more than somebody that they know. Isn't that interesting? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Fred is in Garfield, New Jersey. Hello, Fred. Frankie, good morning. Good morning. Uh, the uh, the plastic covers, uh, uh, windows on the car, headlights on the cars these days, they get very cloudy, and car wash don't clean that. So I live in a private house, a lot of cars on my block, and when I see a car that's got the fogged up uh, windows. I have this special compound. I tell the person, okay, if I clean it, go ahead. And they're elated, and it looks like glass, and they're so happy. Oh, that's very clever. I'd never, I never heard that. That makes a lot of sense, though. Yeah, the, uh, the white rubbing compound does it in, oh, two minutes. It looks like glass after that. And as far as baseball, two things annoy me. Uh, home plate, these new announcers call it the dish. And uh, if the game is tied, they say it's knotted, and they never stop talking. They say it's what? If it's tied, they say it's what? Knotted. Knotted. I'm trying to think. Have I noticed that? I've noticed the oh, dish. Oh, they always say knotted. Their head is knotted. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. 800-848-9222. Bobby is in Belmore. Hello, Bobby. Hey, a few things. Real quick, 
to ascertain. They've just added all these new um, words to the uh, Merriam-Webster, which was our first American dictionary, all these new words, and it's like, hey, how do you keep up on this, you know? It's like, what is really a, a good word and stuff? And uh, just talking about uh, um, that, that's it. I'll take my answer off the air, you know? Well, I don't know what your question was, Bobby, but, uh, I mean, I don't know what answer to give you. I, I'm all for new words, right? I'm, I'm trying to create a bunch of words on this show, right? Tedient, we're trying to connect, we're trying to create. Dosativity, we're trying to create. What it all means, I don't know. But your influence does count, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I have been agnostic when it comes to cryptocurrency. I talked. I know nothing about finance. I know nothing about the economy. I know nothing about most things, but which will come as no surprise to many of you. But I li- I listen to people that know a thing or two about this. I've interviewed them and I talk to them privately, and I'm always interested in learning. But when it comes to cryptocurrency, this is one of those subjects. I talk with someone that's bullish on cryptocurrency, and they get me sold on, okay, well, all right, now, oh, look at all those use cases. Look at all the ways that you could do this and that. And then I'm saying, oh, okay, well, that's the future. That's the way we're going. And then I talk to other well-informed people as as it relates to the economy or the world of finance or whatever, and they make a pretty convincing case that cryptocurrency is not the future of the world economy. So I always try to keep my eye out for cryptocurrency-related stories. And if you're not into crypt, if you don't know about cryptocurrency, perhaps that's why Eric Adams thinks we should be teaching this in schools more. But if you're not into cryptocurrency, Basically, all it is is it's a digital currency. That's that that not one, but there's many. There's Bitcoin, there's Dogecoin, there's Ethereum, there's all sorts of you know different cryptocurrencies. You can make your own cryptocurrency. Nothing stops you, right? As long as it's traded on the blockchain. So anyway, I had been following the ups and the downs in the cryptocurrency market, and there's a website. Crypto.com, which became big for a while. While crypto was ascendant, Crypto.com was big. And a woman 
you could do business on crypto.com. I think it's a sort of a trading platform for different cryptocurrencies. A woman asked for a $100 refund from this crypto platform, crypto.com. But instead, she received something else. Here's James Preston of uh, a T- uh, Calkine TV business reporter in Australia explaining exactly what happened. Listen to this. Exchange platform Crypto.com has suffered an embarrassing blunder after accidentally refunding an Australian customer an amount way higher than she expected. The woman, based in Melbourne, was accidentally refunded $10 million Aussie dollars instead of $100. However, Crypto.com didn't realise the error until seven months later during an end-of-year audit. According to a Crypto.com report, the outlet legally pursued the user to recover the money, informing the court that the mistake happened due to an account number, which was incorrectly entered in the payment field instead of the initially requested amount. But by the time Crypto.com realised what had happened, the $10 million had already been spent on a multi-million dollar mansion in the Melbourne suburb of Craigieburn. However, a judge has now reportedly ordered the property to be sold and for the exchange's money to be paid back. So, understand what happened. A woman asked for a $100 refund from Crypto.com. Instead, in Australia, instead, she received a $10.5 million payment in an accidental transaction from Crypto.com. And then she gets this money... And she spends it quickly on a luxury home. So now these two sisters in Melbourne are now being chased by the courts after going on a spending spree for the cra- with the cash. So a Crypto.com representative said that the matter is currently before the courts. And they are Crypto.com is a Singapore-based exchange, but they also offer a Visa debit card. And they mistakenly sent this huge sum of $10 million when this woman, Theva Manangori Menavel, asked for a $100 refund in May of 2021. So she gets her $10 million. And instead of notifying Crypto.com of the mistake, Menavel and her sister went shopping. They bought a $1.3 million five-bedroom home. They also allegedly transferred $10.1 million into a joint account following the error. So my question for you is, what would you do? Someone, whether it's Crypto.com or someone else, they accidentally send you $10 million. Accidentally. Not yours. You're entitled to $100. And they send you $10 million. Honestly. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. What would you do? A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. And what do you think should happen? Not necessarily legally, but if you want to, I don't know how familiar you are with Australian law or international law, but if you want to weigh in legally, you can, but morally, ethically. What should happen? What would you do? do you, would you call Crypto.com and say, hey, Crypto.com, 
I only wanted a hundred dollars. You sent me ten and a half million. Or would you do what this woman did and immediately spend the money right away? You know, I remember there's one episode of uh, Married with Children where the Bundys, who are kind of lower middle class, they are uh, they all of a sudden get they come into a windfall of money, which they believe is accidental. So they decide to go on a spending spree very quickly and buy as many perishables as they can so that it's not reclaimed by whoever they're getting it from. And lo and behold, as is the case with these Married with Children episodes, there's a little bit of a twist there. So on the one hand, if someone makes a mistake like that, whether it's a bank, whether it's Crypto.com, whether it's a casino... Look, these entities have no problem nickel and diming everyone to death. Why shouldn't you get to keep it? They gave you the money. Their error, not yours. Remember, if you've ever played the game of life, I mean, the board game, the actual board game, the game of life, what happens? You spin the thing. uh, I think it might be the case with Monopoly, too, but I'm pretty sure it's a game of life. You spin the thing, and it says, bank error in your favor. I don't know if it's game of life or Monopoly. Game of life, uh, uh, bank error in your favor, collect X amount of dollars. You keep it. You keep it in the game of life or in Monopoly. It's not important which one. On the other hand, look, that's not your money. That $10.5 million doesn't belong to you, and you did not earn it. Why should you get to keep it? I'll tell you what I'd do but I'd rather hear yours. Also, I'm wondering, there was a, this is going back 20 years more. There was a Wall Street Journal story over 20 years ago about a guy that got a check for a million dollars. And I have to research the story because I haven't thought about it in 20 years. This guy got a fake check. I don't know if it was a fake check or whatever, but um, this guy gets a check for a million dollars. And he deposits it in his account. And it records as being in his account. Now, the guy didn't spend the money, unlike these two. But he just kind of got a kick out of the fact that this fake check was in his account for a while. And then before the Wall Street Journal did this big story on it. What would you do? Someone sends you $10.5 million by accident. What would you do? 800-848. And why? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Al in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. Hey. So we all know that the flesh is weak. And uh, we also know that possession is nine-tenths of the law or something like that. So you give me a check for $10.5 million. If it's not a person giving me the check, a personal check, if it's a big corporation, I'm keeping the money. I'm running away with it. I'm joining GA just so I can cover myself. And when I go to GM and say I'm a degenerate gambler, I lost the money. I lost the money. That way, when they come chasing me down, I'll pay you back. But it's got to be like you know, $100 a week. That's all I can do. Now, but let me ask you this, Al. Ultimately, you didn't earn the money. Right, so why should you get to keep it and spend it? Well, I hope it's an insurance check from an insurance company. 
because they've been robbing me. Well, but let, but let's say let's say it's a store that you asked for a refund back, like this woman did with Crypto.com, and instead of sending you a hundred dollars, they made an account error and they sent you ten million dollars. Why should you get to keep it? Hmm? I understand, but the way I look at it is. Um, they're going to rob you in the, in the long run because this crypto thing, I don't understand. So let me rob them first. All right. Okay. I'll, hey, hey. by the way, this is not as rare as it seems. I was trying to find that story, that Wall Street Journal story from 20 years ago that I was thinking about. And you know what I came across? This story from last year. Headline, New York Times. A $1.2 million bank error buys a house and an arrest, official says. Kellen Spadoni tried to keep a deposit that was off by five decimal points. Now, this isn't Australia. This isn't cryptocurrency. This is the United States, and this is American currency. According to authorities who said she was charged with fraud and fired from her job the same day. So this was, in in the case of this, Charles Schwab accidentally sent this woman $1.2 million dollars. It had accidentally ended up in her brokerage account, and then the next day they tried to recover the money that they had deposited into the account of Kellen Spadoni, but a quarter of the funds were already gone. For about a month, the company said calls, emails, and text messages to this woman were unanswered. The funds had been transferred to another account and used by this woman to buy a house and an SUV. She was arrested on fraud and theft charges. I really look, I'll tell you where I come down. And I don't want it to I don't want it to impact your decision because I am curious how you would spend this. But I when a big corporation, Charles Schwab or crypto.com, when they make a mistake in your favor, there is a temptation like Al says to say, "Look, those big guys, those fat cats, they screw us all the time." Well, look, if they make an error, who am I to correct them? They put that money in my account. I'm going to spend it. Um, In fact, that's always what I always tell people in Atlantic City at the craps table. Look, if the dealer hands you, if he pays you off, you take that money. Don't question it. Just take those chips. But at the same time, you didn't earn that money. The money is not yours. Why should you get to keep it? I would not keep it. If somebody sent me money that was not for a gift or money that I'd earned or a bonus, but purely by accident, as far as I'm concerned, I have absolutely, and look, I could use the money, but I am absolutely giving that money back. Absolutely 100%. Number one, it's not yours. Why should you get to keep it? Number two, um, it's bad karma. It's bad karma to take things that don't belong to you. You're stealing it from someone. Does it matter whether you're stealing it from Crypto.com or Charles Schwab? Morally, ethically, legally, I don't think it does. I would absolutely not keep the money. What would you do? 800-848-9222. David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, uh, Frank. You know, something just occurred to me while you were speaking. If you got a, um, let's say, a Snickers from a vending machine... And an extra Snickers fell into the bin for some reason. Would you keep that Snickers or would you leave it or return it? If I'm being honest, I would keep the Snickers. Okay. 
Now, this is totally different from money, obviously. Um, something like this happened to me about 20 years ago when I used to bank with Washington Mutual. They credited me twice for one of my paychecks. Now, I'll admit I was tempted to withdraw the extra 300 and change, but I didn't because I knew it was A, illegal, and B, they would figure it out eventually, which they did the next day. It's not worth going to prison because if you take $10 million that you know doesn't belong to you, eventually you're going to end up going to jail. That's the law. Taking something that doesn't belong to you unless it's a candy bar, like the situation I brought up at the beginning, is theft, and you'll pay the price. So it's not worth it. All right. Thank, thank you, David. Matt, where do you come down on this? Oh, I'm flying to Jamaica. You're, you're, you're keeping the money. I'm taking the money. Keeping the money. Kenneth? Uh, I feel like karma would catch up to me. I, I'd probably give it back. See, Matt feels like karma's already No, I'm only him. kidding. I, I would take it. I mean, I, I would give it back. You would give it back. Yeah, yeah. First of all, there's no way they're not going to find out. Right. $10 million. So not even because of that, though. You're gonna, well, you're going to get caught. You're going to go to jail or whatever happens to you is going to happen. But, yeah, you're, it is bad karma. I'm just not the type of person. I'd feel guilty for the rest of my life. There's no possible way that I'd, I'd feel comfortable with this money knowing mm. that I took it in error. And, by the way, it's Monopoly. It is Monopoly. Yeah, I was yeah. just telling Matt, too. I was just telling Matt, one time this guy randomly Venmoed me three grand. Oh, and I reached out to him like pretty much immediately because I was like, I can't keep this money. Right. Like no, it will, right thing it do. will come back to Absolutely me. Absolutely the right thing. To do. Yeah, I spoke with him about it, and like Matt said, he's like, you didn't get a cut out of it for helping the guy out and giving it back. And I was like, nah, he didn't offer me anything. So oh, he should have given <laughs> you something. Yeah, That's... I was like, give him a hundred bucks. Or something. Yeah, yeah, buy lunch. I want to buy dinner for that guy that gave me that advice on the car. You know, uh, I feel like I owe him that. By the way, we're still trying to find that guy. Call back if you can. All right, thank you. Um, 800-848-9222. It's funny what Matt said there, and what, or what I think both Matt and David said, which is that they're going to somehow get that money back. Somehow. You're not going to be able to keep that house. Maybe you'll get to keep it for six months, seven months, six weeks, six days, six years. Eventually, they're going to get it back. It reminds me, as either Matt and or David were saying that, it reminded me of a film that I saw many years ago, 23 years ago or, or more, called Top of the World. Not a great film. Not a great film. You got, uh, the best thing about it is it's got some good actors in it. Dennis Hopper, uh, Tia Carrera. You don't see her anymore, do you, Tia Carrera? But um, Peter Weller, who played RoboCop. And obviously, even 23 years ago or 25 years ago, however many years it came out, I was into – Movies about gambling. I love movies that takes place in a casino. And there's this one scene. It has very little to do with the plot. But there's this one scene where Dennis Hopper is a casino executive. And this guy loses all his money. I mean, more than all his money. He loses three lifetimes worth of money. And he's about to kill the casino executive, played by Dennis Hopper. I think Joe Pantoliano was in this picture, too. I have to, I, I don't know. I haven't seen it since the late 90s. But anyway, it's called Top of the World. But this guy's about to kill the casino executive. And Dennis Hopper says, whatever the guy's name is, Fred, Fred, I can be dead. I promise you, somehow, whoever's sitting in this chair, whether you're in jail or not, whoever's sitting in this chair is going to get this casino's money. 
I promise you, you can kill me. You could kill the next five guys that sit in this chair. This casino is going to get its money. That's kind of how I feel about if you try to rip off a big corporation. Is there a possibility you could get away with it? Maybe. I think it's pretty slim, personally. 800-848-9222. What would you do? Keep the money? Give it back? Something else? Uh, Helen is in Fairfield. Hello, Helen. Hello, Frank. So here's what I would do. I mean, this was my immediate thought. So I would take the money. I would put it in an investment account. And I would accrue the interest on this particular money, which would be a lot for $10 million. And when they discover this, which they eventually would discover it, I would negotiate with them and say, you take the principal back. And because I've invested the money and, um, and you now have a case for what an, uh, an honest person I am giving it back, you give me what I have accrued. And Interesting. Let's see what happens. Interesting. Okay. All right. All right. That's uh, that's an interesting middle ground there. Not quite uh, altruistic and just say, here, take it back, take it back. I don't want it. But not exactly the greed that uh, that we've seen uh, from the two stories that I just alluded to. That's but you're still keeping the money. Well, you're keeping the interest that you've generated. No, but you're keeping the money. Because she said, I'll keep the money and invest it. And when they it's, find right, out, right. she's not saying, oh, I know right. I got she's, this money yeah, she's not that I'm not them, supposed to have. She's not calling them right away right. And, uh, and, and, and bring it back. You know, it's funny. I was listening to David also when he said he got two paychecks by accident one time. I would have no idea if I got two paychecks. You know what I do? And, again, I'm not proud of this, but this is the way it is. I, I get my check, and I said, all right, I have money. Let me look at how much money's in there. And I spend every dollar of it, spend every dollar of it until there's money in there again. And I would have no idea. They could, I don't want to say this too loudly, they could pay me a quarter of what I'm supposed to get paid or five times the amount that I would get paid. I would have no idea. I'm not, I know people that are looking at every dollar of their paycheck, not me. Uh, My money comes in, it goes right out, goes right out. Credit card, boom, mortgage, whatever, utilities, babysitter, pa, 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 pa. All right, no more money left? Okay, I have to stop spending it. That's the that's the modus operandi. I know somebody who got an extra check from their workplace, and they did alert the workplace and said, I think you paid me too much. And they said, no, 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 it's a bonus. Really? Yeah, they just gave him a bonus. Without telling him? Without telling him. See, that's nice. That's nice. See, uh, that um, film Finding Forrester with Sean Connery, one of the things Connery's character in that film says, and I think it's absolutely true, is the best thing in the world is an unexpected gift at an unexpected time. Nothing beats that. Nothing beats that. 800-848-9222. Jim is calling from my car. Jim, how did you get into my car? Jim, I don't blame you for not wanting to comment. Greg is calling from Ohio. Hello, Greg. Hello, Frank. First-time caller. Ah, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Hopefully you'll make it a habit. I'm calling from Steubenville, Ohio. Wonderful. Land of uh, Dean Martin, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Here in Ohio, a young boy got a $100,000 check from the bank. It was a mistake. And he called his lawyer, called a lawyer, and they charged the bank a $10,000 finding fee, and they paid it. 
Well, what, so the bank um, wait, take that. Take me through that again. So the guy the gets a hundred. They send a, a check with the wrong uh, decimal point for a hundred thousand dollars. He got a hold of a lawyer. They sent the bank a nice cordial letter saying that he's going to charge you ten thousand dollar finding fee, and they paid it, and he gave him the check back. Wait a minute. See, he basically held up the bank for ten grand. Yeah, they paid it. Wow. That I do the same. I do the same thing. I've done it already. I, I went to. Uh, I had a surgery, and I was getting all these medical bills, and I kept getting this uh, bill from some company you never heard of. You know, for this medical bill, and I know I paid it because I had to cancel check. And uh, they kept sending me letter, letter, pay it, pay it, pay it. And I said, "Oh, fine." I had to cancel check, and they said, "Well, can you send us the, the cancel check?" I said, "Well, yes, for a fifty dollar finding fee, because it cost me my time," and they dropped it. <laughs> Really? Well, that's interesting. Greg, thanks for calling. Thanks for listening. Call again. You know, it's funny. My friend Dennis, great guy, Dennis Petoff, he's in the movie. Um, well, no, he's not in the movie. He was. He went to the School of Visual Arts in the 1970s, and he worked on the set of the film King Kong. And basically, he was um, kind of an extra. And he, 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 I don't even think you see him in the film. But he rode a motorcycle. This is the 1970s King Kong with Charles Grodin and uh, Jeff Bridges. And he rode a motorcycle in the film, but I think they cut out a scene. I don't think you see him in the film. Certainly no dialogue or anything like that. But he worked on the film. And by the way, he said uh, that um, Jeff Bridges was a really nice guy, a super nice guy. And so was Jessica Lange. Uh, But Dennis was supposed to get paid, you know, some menial amount of money for this. Basically just an regular hourly wage, and they send him, by accident, the studio, the Dino De Laurentiis studio, sends him this big check like that would be meant for a, a top-notch star. And Dennis gave the money back, but there was no finder fee involved or anything like that. Mike in New Jersey, what say you? Frank, I'm going to spend the money on things they can't take from me. Hair plugs, dental implants, <laughs> liposuction, and possibly a penile implant. <laughs> but, Mike, this is going to make can't. you pay it back. You know, it's funny. I told the story on Friday of how the state of Mississippi, instead of giving all the money that was meant for welfare recipients, they gave it all to Brett Favre. And uh, Brett Favre gave it all back, but he didn't pay it back with interests. They want that interest back. So, uh This is a more common problem than people realize. I'm going to continue with your calls in a second. But speaking of crypto, I had to – this story I found interesting as well. A year ago this week, the country of El Salvador became the first country to make Bitcoin legal tender or an official currency. And I remember where I was. I was in my backyard. It was still warm. I think I was smoking a cigar. This was pre-Carmine, so uh, comparatively, I had all the free time in the world. And um, I was listening to the Cats at Night show, and John Cantamatidis, who's very kind of cautious on crypto, was interviewing Brock Pierce. And Brock Pierce is very bullish on crypto. And since then, over the course of the last year, my opinion of Brock Pierce has just diminished significantly. But... um, Brock Pierce is all in on this crypto stuff. You know, Brock Pierce is Mr. Crypto. The reason Eric Adams is such a big crypto person taking two of his first paychecks in cryptocurrency is because of Brock Pierce. 
So Brock Pierce was doing this whole media tour about how big this was, that he that El Salvador is going to be accepting Bitcoin as legal tender. He even went on Fox Business and said in less than one in one month from the day that it started, which was September 7th or Bitcoin Day, over 50 percent of the population of the country had downloaded a Bitcoin wallet. So it's exceeded my wildest expectations. But what you pointed out is interesting. The primary currency in El Salvador is the U.S. dollar. So there was no central bank. They don't have the ability to issue their own money. Similar to like Ecuador and Panama, there are a number of countries that run solely on the dollar. And so you don't have a, a, a central bank effectively you know, in the way they see so this as all this upside. Do you now have, though, a case model that you could present to other countries and say, look, it works here, it could work there as well? Yes, so I was with the president of Ecuador, Panama, Honduras, uh, Guatemala a couple of days ago. I've got 30 other presidents in line. Right now, there is so much interest, and because of how successful El Salvador has been, people are really curious. I'm not there to tell them what to do, but I'm giving them the information because the data doesn't lie. Well, one year later, how has it worked out? To put it charitably, it has been a total disaster, okay? The president of El Salvador had a dream of making El Salvador the cryptocurrency capital of the world. At worst, this national experiment is being called a total failure. And at best, according to El Salvador's former central bank chief, quote, No one really talks about Bitcoin here anymore. It's been kind of forgotten. That's the best case scenario. So altogether, the Salvadoran, I want you to think about this, okay? The next time Eric Adams or the mayor of Miami or any of these other crypto mayors try to convince you to make your city the next cryptocurrency capital of the world, the next time you hear that, just think, we can be the next El Salvador. The Salvadoran government has spent over $100 million of public funds on Bitcoin since its adoption as legal tender, and it's still feeling bullish. They bought $1.5 million more of Bitcoin in late June. But given Bitcoin's price plunge since last fall, the value of El Salvador's investment has crumbled by more than half, according to Bloomberg. This bad bet comes as the country's economic growth is slowing, which is exacerbated by mounting national debt. And the global bankers who could help El Salvador don't seem to understand the concept of buying the dip. The International Monetary Fund has pushed back on the country's request for a $1.3 billion loan. They've raised all sorts of red flags, and I think they're kind of right, about this cryptocurrency investment. So it has a lot of people asking a year later. This is only a year in. What was the point of all this anyway? El Salvador spent a big chunk of Bitcoin on incentivizing adoption. Thirty. Listen to what they did. in Bitcoin was given to every citizen who downloaded the national cryptocurrency wallet app. So what you heard from Brock Pierce there about what a success this was, 50% downloaded the wallet. Well, that's because they paid them to download it. Um, According to a survey from the U.S. National Bureau of Economic Research, this is how it worked out. Over half of Salvadoran households 
have downloaded the app. As Brock Pierce said, most in the first month. But 20% didn't spend the free Bitcoin at all. An additional 60% spent the gifted funds and they never made another transaction. The small group of Salvadorans who actively use the Bitcoin wallet are overwhelmingly young, educated, and banked, meaning they already have bank accounts. Um, That's not exactly the target audience. When Brock Pierce and others were trying to sell Bitcoin to the El Salvadorans in the world, they were saying that this would help the unbanked. The president said that of El Salvador, not the United States. They said that this would help the 70% of households in El Salvador with no bank account gain access to the world of digital banking without having to open a traditional bank. They had a plan in El Salvador to build a Bitcoin city, to build a tax-free city on the side of a volcano. I'm not, I'm not joking about any of this. Where the restaurants, the bars, the sports teams all pay homage to Bitcoin. That's on hold. In order to build the city, the government plans to raise a billion dollars by selling Bitcoin-backed bonds. But the bond issuance keeps getting delayed. I wonder why. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Mark is in New Haven. Hello, Mark. Good morning, Frank. The Brockle and the baby. Everybody good? Everyone's great. Thank you. So I first question was, I would do what Diane did was invest the money and, and hope to hold on to the interest. But on the larger topic of Bitcoin, um, it's, it's American money. Most pieces have the full faith and credit of the government to back up the money. And we all agree that we can use it as legal tender. To me, it's like Lily Tomlin said in a show many years ago, what is reality really but a collective hunch? <laughs> and that, to me, is Bitcoin. All right, that's not bad, uh, Mark. I, I mean, I think that's. I think you've hit. I, got, I think you've put your finger on the problem. And then, 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 then there was a Myron Cohen on the question of finding the money. The two old ladies talking, and he says, "So tell me, what would you do if you found a million dollars?" And her friend thinks about it for a minute and says, "I will tell you the truth. If it belonged to a poor person, I think I would give it back." <laughs> Uh, I've heard that one. That's not bad. All right. Hey, uh, those of you that are hold, you, holding, you're welcome to hold. What we're going to do is uh, give you an opportunity to uh, win $1,000, not in Bitcoin, but in United States currency. Be the seventh caller to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are, we're going to give you a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, then you will be $1,000 richer. Simple as that. Go ahead and call right now. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
money grabber. Fits in the tantrums. Love, love, love Fits in the tantrums. Uh, this is maybe my favorite band these days. Modern. I love it. Great. Great music. All right, uh, we are going to, for all you money grabbers out there, going to try to give one of you an opportunity to win some money as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Appreciate that. Hope uh, you were enjoying your newfound relationship with uh, Alex from the New York Post, who quoted you so liberally in that article. Uh, Let us say hello to today's contestant, Rick in Tom's River. Hello, Rick. Good morning. All right, Rick. Uh, my sister-in-law lives in Tom Tom's River. Deborah, you ever run into her? I'm really, I'm really in Hollywood City at Berkeley Retirement Committee. Oh, okay. Is well, she here? No, no, she's not retired yet. She's uh, she's on the younger end of things. All right, Rick. Uh, have you heard this game before? Plenty of times. I listen to it every morning. Okay, great. Uh, so you know the rules then, I assume. Yes. Okay. So the timer will begin after we ask the first question. If you're ready, let's get started. Okay. What season comes after summer? Autumn or fall. Who was the president of the United States on September 11th, 2001? Uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Bush. Who is the current king of England? Charles. What amendment guarantees the right to bear arms? Second. Who is what is the name of Donald Trump's oldest child? Uh Oh god, shoot. Baron. No, I'm sorry. Baron is the youngest. The youngest. <clears throat> Donald Trump Jr., 44 years of age is Donald Trump's oldest. Rick, uh, very well. You did well compared to what we've seen lately. You got up to question five. I'm going to put you on hold and uh, give your information to Kenneth. And Kenneth is going to send you something nice. There you have it. Okay. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. You know, speaking of money, um, I, um, you know, I've been a volunteer and a donor for a long time to the National Psoriasis Foundation. And I, I every year I'm one of I participate in the walk every year and every year I'm one of the top donors. Excuse me, uh, not donors but fundraisers. And uh I am always somebody that I I've emceed their event many times and you know it's always a, a nice event and I'm very committed to, you know, participating in the walk. By the way, if you want to join my team or uh, make a small contribution, I'll post a link on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You can join my team, walk with uh, my wife and me and Carmine. Carmine's going to walk with us this year. Our team's called the Frankfooters. This year I'm even getting uh, shirts, which will be fun. But um, in any event, they called me last week and they say, hey, Frank, we're doing this big gala in April and of next year, 2023. 
and they say, uh, hey, you, you've done so much for us with this National Psoriasis Foundation. We would love to have you be one of our honorees. And now I know how this goes, right? I've been around the block, right? So I know this means if I agree to this, I'm going to be, I'm essentially committed to trying to beg all of my friends and family members to donate excessive amounts of money. And it's one of those things, yeah, we'll honor you if you can raise $50,000. And so the first thing I said was, you know, that sounds great. I'm honored to be honored. But just so you know, I don't have the ability to raise or contribute the kind of money that most honorees for this kind of thing probably do. So they said, yeah, okay, that was kind of what we're hoping. But we still want to honor you. Now, I'm sure there's some some catch in this, but I agreed to meet with them, the folks from the National Psoriasis Foundation, when they're in town for the walk in uh, October. But we've seen this movie before. We know exactly what's going to happen because the present Frank's greatest adversary, the person who screws over present Frank more than any other person in his life is past Frank. So what I'm going to do is screw over future Frank. I'm going to agree to this happily, and I'm going to say yes, and then not think about it until April. And then come April, when this is a big time commitment, and I'm stressing in how to raise this money to be, in order to be honored, I am going to be thinking to myself, why did past Frank screw me over back in October? So that's how this is going to go. But why don't you just apologize? I will. To no, let's see. I'll apologize to future Frank. Red uh, proactively. All right, but who knows? No, actually, I did tell them that I can't raise much money for them, but uh, they still apparently want to do that. So I do feel obliged to try and raise some of this money now for the walk. So if you want to make a donation, you can go to Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan, and we're also still raising money for our Tunnel to Towers walk on September twenty fifth. So if you want to make a uh, donation, you could go to othersideofmidnightshow.com, walk.othersideofmidnightshow.com. We're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit, but a couple of you have been patiently holding. Let me try and get to a few of you before we get to 15 seconds of fame. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Yeah, Frank. I'd like to say that... Uh, over the years, I had a few million dollars put in my checking account. In other words, it, it, was, it didn't belong to me. Really? Oh, yeah. But what happened was that they, they took it out right away. But I would never, I, I would never glam money that was never mine. In fact, I found wallet, a wallet right outside my door on the on the window, the whole window. And this guy had like 20 credit cards inside. He had his whole paycheck. He had everything. And I had individuals down the hall from me that lived there that if if I didn't grab it that day, they would have waltzed off with everything on the guy. Oh. And I, I, I took it and I got it to my super and, and the guy came back looking for it. He put in uh, – he was he was putting in uh, cable vision or something, but he was so lucky that I found it. Oh yeah. Then, then I I found money on the street, sixty dollars, and I'm holding it in my hand, 
And I saw the police coming by, and I gave it to the police to take. And I said, look, I can't hold on to this. This is not my money. I don't know who's coming back. And I gave it to them. And then I was in... um, I was in the bus terminal up in Washington Heights. I was waiting for somebody. We were going to lunch. So where I was standing, there was a uh, there was two women that came. They there's a little refreshment stand in the center, and they bought donuts and coffee or whatever. I happened to see it from a distance, and all of a sudden they had this big boombox radio. They put on a counter. Well, they bought their items, they were walking away, and they left the boombox there, and I ran right over, and I grabbed the boombox, and I chased them just before they got out the door. I said, hey, lady, hey, ladies, turn around, turn around. And they turned around, they gave me like a dirty look first, and I held up the boombox, and I hit it on the side, I gave a few raps. And the the woman sheepishly face turned like, uh, said, oh, I'm sorry, I like trying to accuse you. And she grabbed the boombox sheepishly. They turned around and they ran out the door. I was so lucky I caught them before they got out the door. And this happened after I retired years ago from the post office, just like a few months. Uh, It it was like a a spell, uh, called it like a spell. Uh, this happened in a few months' time, believe it or not, three or four months' time. It was incredible. Oh, I believe it, Tom. I believe it. I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad you're out there listening. I'm glad you were uh, serving our nation so proudly in the post office for so many years. I'm a great admirer of the post office, as you know. 800-848-9222. Fugazi Tom is in the box. The other Tom. Hello. Hey, Frank. Hey, look. When the Bitcoin currency fails, I'm working on some wooden nickels right now that I'm going to try to peddle as solid currency. Now, answer to the question, I'm going to try and keep that money. I mean, I ain't too, too crowded to beg. One thing I want to find out is, is the crypto company um, good at correcting their mistakes? I mean, if they make a mistake and underpay somebody, or, or is it going to be like the government to get your money back from them? You know, I would like to know that. But, um, yeah, I would try to get away with some. I would hide some and then contact them and tell them I'd gambled it some away. And uh, I wouldn't be able to um, pay it back. You know, but, Frank, did you say a casino you would take money from but not a Schwab's? Did you say that? I said, uh, you know, that if I'm at the craps table and they give me chips, I'm not going to sit there and question uh, each, each you know, move that the craps dealer makes or the blackjack dealer or the roulette dealer. And if they're putting those chips in front of me, I'm taking those chips. Okay. I mean, that's how you feel about it. I mean, and uh, I would um, – the guy who said he got the P would have the penal thing. He needs to know that those are confiscatable. Okay, <laughs> that's good, good to know, Tom. That's good. It's a great public <laughs> service announcement. Thank you. Fifteen seconds of fame in just a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, We will end this show as we do each and every day by giving you the opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. 800-848-9222. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Fred is in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, Dr. Sky told me to look up and see the constellation Orion. You know, it takes up a lot of space. I'll give it three stars. Oh, Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. In regard to your Instagram followers, it's quality, not quantity. That's important. Although, quantity would be good, too. Charles is in Queens. Two quick, very quick jokes. What's the difference difference between a wife and a terrorist? Answer, with a terrorist, you can negotiate. (laughs) Um, Also, what are the three rings of marriage? Engagement ring, wedding ring, and suffering. Yeah, careful with that joke. It's an antique. Mark is in New Haven. Toronto, this happened when you were at Cape May when it was so hot and sticky and humid in Chappaqua. Bill actually got into bed with Hillary. (laughs) Paul in Orange County. Frank, they say if you're young and you're not a liberal, then you don't have a heart. If you're old and you're still a liberal, then you don't have a brain. Joe in Brooklyn. (laughs) Joe. The Sex Pistols did the song, God Save the Queen, the fascist regime. They made you a moron. You're not a human being. E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, Frank, I am very grateful and thankful that they invited President Biden, our uh, Roman Catholic devout uh, president, to the uh, funeral in England, and God bless America. Robert in Manhattan. Uh, I had to wait for three hours to get on the phone. Still got seven more seconds. I had to wait for three hours for you to get my... Patrick in Rochester. Yeah, King Trump. King Trump. Leo on the Upper West Side. Sal in Brooklyn. Thank goodness he was willing to hold for that. All right, uh, we'll end it there. If uh, we didn't get to you, I'm sorry. Uh, we'll continue tomorrow. We've got an action-packed show for you tomorrow. We're going to talk about a uh, little bit about professional wrestling tomorrow. I think Obi Murray uh, may be uh, on the program tomorrow as well. And uh, got some other things that we're working on cooking up. It's still Fashion Week. A friend of mine actually just launched a new conservative fashion magazine. Meaning, not that they wear a lot of clothes, but it's for political conservatives. So he may join us in studio as well. We've got some exciting things going on. And uh, stay in touch. You can follow me on Twitter, at Frank Moreno. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Frank Moreno. Good day.